This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's battle lines being drawn So what mihi nomen est? Stella at Hawk S. Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 196, Politics in Gotham, the Batman Universe, and Political Thought Discussion Special for August MMXX. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Oh Hot Moo So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? <laughs> What about uh, White Tiger? What about White Tiger? <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. 
Well, here on the screen with me, take a drink because I laughed before five minutes. This little nerdy guy is a what? You kind of look like a little nerd. He, I, well, he's the one who started the podcast with Latin. Well, I, well that's I, true. Had it been German, I may be a little on board, but can you give me a translation? That just basically said, hello, I am your host. Well, I said, my name is Stella. So there we are. But this guy who's already come at me, he's one of my nemeses from the school that I used to work at now. And kind of, we're kind of friends. We're working our way into it. It is, some people like to call him Heath Bar. Other people like to call him Sam Heath. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. I would love to meet those other people that call me Heath Barr. I, it's yeah, mainly students, actually. Oh, really? Oh, you're serious. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, in my years there, I missed that. Okay. I think they're not as brave as I, where I will call people like Father Jerkins to his face or, you know, Heath Barr. So I think they're just like, hey, hey, let's call him Heath Barr. And they just don't do it to your face. Now I know. Yes. So this has been actually a little while in the making that we're going to be doing a discussion on this book. It's backwards, unfortunately. Yeah. So what happened was I actually got this a year ago. So shame on me. I was, I was getting a review copy and I was supposed to review it way long ago. And I accidentally got two. And so I wrote back to the guy and said, hey, you gave me something, another one by accident because I didn't want to steal. And he said, just give it to somebody. And I thought, hmm. And so I thought, Sam, that would be great. Let's read these and have a discussion, a podcast. And I think that was in the fall or something way long ago. And so now we are finally doing it. Here we are, Blessing in Disguise, the double book. Absolutely. I call him my nemesis. I have several nemeses. So you are the first one that's actually been on my show. Here's one reason why he's my nemesis. He gave this to me as a goodbye Hmm. gift when I left school. My favorite villain. What's sick about this, people, is that it was a blind bag. (laughs) And and he said, I know what's in there. I said, you couldn't possibly. He said, no. I I stood in the shop and I felt around because I knew what I needed in order to get you that one. Yes. My daughter and I felt no less than 30 (laughs) to 50 bags to make sure we got the one that was appropriate for our dynamic. Yeah. Um, As listeners know, because I just went on a rant a couple days ago, you know how much I hate the Joker. So of course, this guy has to give it to me. And our mutual friend, Cindy, she was saying, did you even try to befriend this guy? I said, absolutely not. Why would I ever want to be Sam's friend? You got to start off with nemeses first and then build up, hopefully. Well, no one made you put the Joker together. Remember, the pieces were all apart. So that says something about your psyche. I guess that's true. Yeah. I did want to talk to you a little bit about your comic histories, just because it is the Mm. first time that you've been on this show. When I was telling my mom, actually, like, oh, I'm going to do this show with this guy I used to work with. She said, what are his qualifications? Wow. And I said, and here's my first insult of the night. Well, that's a good question. I guess he's a man, so he thinks he's always qualified for everything. Mm, Gender assumptions. (laughs) But no, I mean, what is your your comic history or Mm. um, how much have you dabbled in comics? It all began as a wee lad with Bazooka Joe Bubblegum. (laughs) And I would read the comics. Really, that was my first exposure to comics. So like we would get the gum and we would get just 
bags of it when we would go to the lake. And I always loved getting those comics. They were, it was wrapped up in there and they were just like one or two or three panel comics about Bazooka Joe. And I would keep them. And over the years I had like dozens and dozens and maybe hundreds of them. I don't know where they went, but it was that little wax paper. And so I always was interested in those. And I always liked the stories. They were direct, they were simple. And then decades later, I feel like the first time that I really engaged comics other than Bazooka Joe, I jumped from that to reading Watchmen. And I don't, I, somebody, it wasn't you, because I know you've got some feelings about Watchmen, but somebody had suggested that to me and it, and it showed me what a graphic novel could be. And it wasn't Bazooka Joe. Those were, those were so different. And then you and I got into a lot of conversations over a couple of years and you gave me a lot of things. And so there was, there was a, like a 20 year gap. And then a, a, I guess for me it was a lot, but a lot of engagement with some very specific graphic novels, most related to the Batman universe, because yeah. that is absolutely my favorite, both villain and superhero. Um, and then I've just been reading, you know, maybe three, four, five of those every year. But you, you've certainly helped curate those in the last year and a half or so. Yeah, I can't remember when it was. I think that was kind of the spark of us actually conversing together is I think it was in service. Like you had come up to me and and started talking about different things you had read. And I think you had also read The Killing Joke. And I was like, oh, no, why'd you got to go and do that? But I certainly was kind of your pusher, like your your drug pusher, but your comic pusher and and tried to get you to, to look at at different things, which has been a lot of fun because it has opened up a lot of great conversations of, of these. And it's great to have a perspective from like a non-comics reader who doesn't read it all the time to see like, oh, what sort of insights do you have? So it's been yeah. fun to do that. I'll miss that. It'll actually be oh, one of the I things know. I'll we, miss. We can keep it going. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. The the obsession with stories, to, to quote my qualifications, I think helps <laughs> a lot. I mean, growing up, I was my, with my dad, we saw movies together all the time. And with my mom, she was always getting me books, both buying them and from the library. And so I was inundated from forever with stories. And so I think it was kind of a revelation that those stories could be good and deep when I found graphic novels. And I kind of didn't believe that, that that genre had the depth that it did. And, and Watchmen was the first one that really showed me that. And so ever since then, I mean, especially with you giving me really specific ones, I've just been in shock and thrilled and, and that there's so much that's there. So I've always been a reader and I've always been a writer and I've always enjoyed engaging stories, but engaging just the graphic world or the comic universe was, was really, really new and, and, and a shocking and pleasant surprise. Yeah, and you're better than most because some people look at the images and just like, oh, that's a comic book. It's not very mm-hmm. deep, but you were, I, I felt like so open, which I think helped you a lot that this is a story and there's something more to it. It's just that there are images along mm-hmm. with the words, which I thought was great. Yeah. Well, it um, does things that other kinds of art can't do. Yeah. And that's something I can't articulate as much, but it's, it's, it's able to do it in a sense. It does almost everything that a movie does. It just, there's no sound or movement, but there's still so much more that's there than just text on a page. Yeah. And you picked a good one to transition with Watchmen because it's so wordy Mm. that it's almost like a good transition from novels with no pictures to lots of words with some pictures for Watchmen. And then you can kind of break out of that and maybe you'll have some images with no words at all. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I taught Latin at the school that we both taught at. What did you teach? Because this is another reason why I thought you would be a good person to talk to. And another reason why you and I have had such great conversations over the past 
most recent couple years. Uh, mm. So what did you teach and then what will you be teaching? Because I know that that has changed. It did too. change, yeah. So I've always taught, in the 10 years I've taught, I've always had Western civilization. And usually that'll go, usually Western civilization one. So from the Sumerians all the way through the Middle Ages. And then the last couple years I've taught the, a history of Western philosophy and really been engaging that then this, and so we, with that, we start with the pre-Socratics and we go all the way through present day with Wendell Berry. And then this coming year, the father that you mentioned earlier decided to move to Florida, hotbed of humidity and, and health crises. And he is now down there. And so they asked me to switch to teach all of our U.S. history, which amid COVID and the election and the racial unrest is a wild course to be teaching. And I'm scared and excited kind of equally at the same time. So I'll be doing that this year. And I head up our senior thesis program as well. But the the big content will be U.S. history. Yeah, I was just conversing with an alumna and her brother would have had you and he found out he's not going to and he was really sad. He was just Mm -hmm. glad that he wasn't going to have you. So um, unfortunately, you will be missed in that particular position. (laughs) And I will will miss it too. But I think that... You know, I kind of asked our, our superiors, are you, are you sure? Do you really know what this means asking me to teach U.S. history? Which yeah. I've always taught one random section each year. So it's not entirely new, but, but uh, they, they were excited, which made me more motivated. Or trusting, I think, yeah. which made me more motivated. Yeah. Well, we will talk about pedagogy, especially with the scarecrow, because I wonder what you think about that. And I'll mention kind of, yeah. So I'm I'm thinking about you next next year and what what all that will look like. Even more important than your comic history, what is your Barbara Gordon Batgirl history since you are on my podcast? (laughs) Well, my first engagement with her was The Killing Joke, which I know you're going to say, and I would agree, is literally probably the worst way to possibly (laughs) engage her. And I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about Batgirl. I didn't know Barbara Gordon. I didn't even know that those were the same people. I, I, I had no, I had no understanding with that. I read The Killing Joke because Alan Moore did it, and I had just read Watchmen. I think The Killing Joke was my my second one. So I, I learned about her first through that. And I remember when I mentioned it to you, you were you were appalled and pointed out some of the some of the many issues with that specific graphic novel and why it was problematic and why it wasn't faithful to some of the patterns in history of Barbara Gordon and, and who she was. And, and so then that made me interested to read some of, some of the others. And so she's, she's been featured in some other things that I've read. And then this past year, you gave me Batgirl year one. And that's probably the, the deepest one that I've read. And I think your favorite. If I it is my favorite. favorite. Yeah, I could not leave uh, without having good conscience. that to you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 And that was now going back and reading some of these essays, seeing how that subverted some of the earlier Batgirl tropes is, is another thing I really want to dig into. So yeah, Batgirl's sure. probably, Batgirl year one was the deepest exposure that I've had to her. Well, it's probably the best one I could give you for sure. Yeah. So we're, for- unless we're counting Alicia Silverstone. And yeah, as Barbara Batman. Wilson. <laughs> Oh. She doesn't even have Gordon as the last name, though. Yeah. Then so that is my favorite Batman film, even though people say, like, how dare you? That's really? <laughs> yeah. We need an entirely separate podcast episode to talk about the films because I genuinely think I might rate that as my last one. As your last one. Actually, that's funny because I'm going to do, I think, a side project to this, and it's going to be just bringing people on, and we're watching Batman and Robin together and doing a commentary. Wow. But wow. so, like, I will just watch it repeatedly, and I'll have different guests. So we could that could be your wow. next uh, your show. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. 
Because I love it. And people are like, they pan it. They think it's terrible. I'm like, I I think it's great. It's Um, it's the one where Batman has nipples. Is that right? That is correct. Let me situate it in my mind. Okay. (laughs) Well, then need I say more? Man, failing of this because no one talked about it. No, they uh, went on Chris Nolan. uh, They sure did, which I'll talk about that for sure. But Okay, so I would say that your qualifications are pretty decent. Oh, uh, just not. All of that, so I appreciate that. Now, here's a question to kind of get us warmed up, and then we'll uh, take a, a little a little break to do our um, Find Your Joy segment. But what to what extent in your comics and your graphic novels that you read, do you want realism and current events to pop into those stories and perhaps other media representations as well? Because that's about what we're doing here, right? We're taking right. – right comics and we're seeing well how does it actually fit with this larger world that we're actually engaged in every day mm-hmm. i like it best when it's not law and order style like like a straight a rip from the rip from the headlines kind of thing i like it when it's not inten- as, as intentionally obvious and 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 with a lot of these that we'll talk about they had to dig to find some of these and some of these mm-hmm. the connections that these authors found might even be a stretch which which is great you know it's part of what analysis is so i like it when it's subtle I like it when it's so subtle that you're focusing on the content, maybe more than the specific reference to whatever the thing is in the present day. And, and some of those have been done in incredibly well. Yeah. I think there's a, there's somewhere a happy median to, to find for that. Cause I think to a certain extent, comics are escapism. You know, I like to have right. fun when I'm reading them, but at the same time, because our world keeps changing and there are different types of people in there, I want to also see that represented in my stories too. Like you can't ignore what's yeah. happening in the outside world. Right. Right. For lots of reasons. The, the language that I use with my students about this is you talked about a medium is I want I want a story to both shape the culture and I want it to show the culture. Mm-hmm. Like, and and it, it doesn't have to be equal, but I want it to be doing both of those things. Like I want it to be showing and revealing our culture for what it is and critiquing it and talking about it and exaggerating it and all those things. But I also want it to be shaping people to think in different ways. And if it does either of those too much, then usually it's not done in a, in a classy way. And the, the hardest but the best story or graphic novel is holds those and, and switches from one to the other skillfully. But both of those need to be there. Do you feel like what you've read, I, I know you're a big fan, you really enjoy Long Halloween. Um, Black Mirror. Black Mirror, yeah. Do you feel like that hits what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Black Mirror was the one that, that came to mind first. I mean, Watchmen does that a lot, but it was it did so much of that in an obvious way, but I also know that was intentional. Yeah. You know, like, like, like in La La Land, you know, it was on purpose that they weren't the best singers. That was kind of part of what the point of the movie was saying. So I feel like part of Alan, Alan Moore's idea was to make some of these things so obvious that that was almost a commentary on, on the times themselves. But Black Mirror is one that holds those in a very classily together. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, before we get into this big discussion, uh, one of these segments, even though this is a, a special episode, I'll try to keep some of these fun segments in since this is your first time on the show. So a new segment I brought in with COVID is the Find Your Joy segment, and it's subtitled Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy from my friend Shag. So what has been giving you joy in these strange times of uh, coronavirus? Mm. So as you said, I'm a teacher, so I'm with our kids in the summer, and then I'm, I'm at school for the rest of the year. So it's a 10-month, two-month rotation. But 
it's been since mid-March, since that's when quarantine began, even though we were still working full-time, our, our kids were here. So we had to get really creative with things that we did and rhythms that we had as a family. And so a couple things really brought us joy. One was we spent so much more time outside than we normally have. Like we've explored, when the parks were closed, we had to explore a lot of outside without going in the park. So we explored trails and woods and really engaged nature. We expanded our garden. Uh, we found toads and foxes and deer and just, we, we were aware of our land more than, more than we've ever been. Another thing is, is with our, our second child, my wife was eight days late having him. And after like the first day past his due date, we were like, we are going to have a treat every night until he comes. And it was on the eighth night that he came. So it was a lot of really fun, like, like food treats. Um, And so in COVID, we did a lot of that too. The kids would go to bed and there would be like some fun drink or something. And it was, it was very small, but it was something to look forward to. Um, And then the other is it, I think in COVID, it provided a lot more random breaks to be able to really engage kind of whatever the extra thing is that you love. And so I was able to read maybe the same amount as before, but it was at, at more random times in the day, which, which I really liked because I, I want to read things so fast, it forced me to, to slow down. Yeah. So those, those brought us a lot of joy and sustained us to up to now. And, but I am very much ready to head back into school. At mm-hmm. the end of the 10 months, I'm ready for summer. At the end of the two, I'm ready for the school year. So yeah, well, it's I'm ready coming, for these work days. coming down the pipe for you guys. It is day after tomorrow. I did just rewatch all the Twilight films. <laughs> rewatch. So we've seen them. Okay. Of course. Of course oh. I've seen them. Oh. I haven't seen them for a while though, but you know, I was a big fan. I loved the books. And I remember going to the theater with my best friend, Chelsea, and we laughed, I think at the time. And so now I wanted to see how much it held up to like my maturity. And there was still laughing, but it was almost like cringeworthy, like, oh man, what's happening? But it was an enjoyable, it was an enjoyable time. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I will say though, what I will miss about next year, not going back to school is when I invaded your planning period slash study halls in the library, Uh, I guess it would be on blue days, wouldn't it? You named it. Yes. Friendship time. Yeah. So it was blue days. I did not name it that. You named it. I know it's true, but I feel like we became pretty close there. Like I used to just uh, well, sit you next to sit him beside me. Yes, and when you ask incredibly <laughs> provocative and personal and deep questions, then there's yes. not that can happen. Under the guise that I was just coming to read a book, so I brought a book, sat right next to him, even though everywhere else is open. And then, yeah, I would inevitably ask you some sort of controversial question. Then we get into a discussion. So I will miss those for sure. Yes, yeah, it's a great method. Oh, boy. Okay. So now we're going to actually get into it. So we are going to be talking about this book here that I said I got this, uh, this copy, Politics in Gotham. And I will say that um, my second insult, so two of three, I'm saving, I know, right off the bat, they're really close, is that when we were scheduling this, I was very professional, used my professional email, and I threw out a day, telling you know, what times, et cetera. And so he emails back and says, what about 10, 10 to 12, hard stop at 12. And I said, okay, well, I get nervous having hard stops with people that there's not PR behind it because just things happen. I just recorded a six-hour podcast, thought I was only going to go three. I'm a little scared. But you're like, no, needs to be two two hours. And I'm like, okay, 
high maintenance, but okay. Then a week later, or I don't know, several days later, you text me. You're like, actually, could we do it later? I feel like we actually need more time. And I said, that's what I was saying all along. I agree. <sighs> I agree. And as I said in text, three kids under six years old was under my six. rationale for the first. Yeah. And then the depth of what's being said here was my rationale for the change. Yeah. So it definitely was worth a, a late <laughs> night chit chat. The change, yeah. So now we have freedom to talk about this. So for all the people on Twitter who make fun of my run times, it's, I guess it'll be my fault, but it's also, he is now also, uh, yeah, it's a, his fault too. Um, I did actually email Carolyn because I know her uh, name drop. I don't know. And I just wondered how did this whole collection come about? What was the call in? Uh, uh, because I had kind of a criticism, which I'll talk about at the end. And she said that there was a call for academic papers put out on various listservs by Damien Picariello, uh, who's the editor of this. And then people like her submitted proposals. As a political scientist, I was interested immediately because other than the very first article I wrote about comics, which was in response to a call for papers about the politics of superheroes for a political science journal in 2013, this Gotham book in 2018 was only the second time I had seen a call put out by political scientists for a collection focused on politics. I teach a class called Political Thought that is basically political theories from Pericles and Plato to the present. A lot of people who teach this kind of class assign readings that are all by dead or old white Western men. I thought maybe people would submit similar stuff for this collection. Batman is a Thomas Hobbesian Leviathan. Batman is Plato's philosopher king. Batman delivers John Rawlsian justice as fairness. So I figured I could contribute by using feminist theories, which are, of course, a brand of political thought to discuss the changing and in some ways unchanging politics of gender in the Batman universe through discussing all the backrolls. And then she gave me an original call for the papers, which I appreciated. We are seeking chapter-length contributions to an edited volume on politics in the Batman universe. The working title for this project is Politics in Gotham, the Batman Universe and Political Thought. So I guess that that came through. (laughs) We're open to contributions that use any part of the Batman universe, films, comics, television series, etc., to explore issues of politics and political thought. How might resources drawn from the history of political thought inform our readings of and conversation about the Batman universe? In what ways might the Batman universe provide a useful lens through which to consider enduring questions in politics and political thought? And what insights might be drawn from the Batman universe as we consider contemporary political issues? In turning to Batman, we hope to find fresh provocations that might inform a broad range of discussions of politics and political thought. And then, of course, his email address. So just to give you a sense of what the call was. And then I also wanted Carolyn's perspective of why did you go for that and and that sort of thing. So did you read the whole work? Mm, And that's important. I did not read the whole work. I went through it and looked at it when you first gave me the book a year ago or eight months ago. And then I read and reread the four for tonight. Okay. So I did read the whole thing just to give people an idea, not like a shaming tactic. And I gave him four. There was one I was on the cusp of recommending, but four that I thought would spark good conversations between the two of us. So just to give you an idea of what that's going to be. So what we're going to do is I'm going to use Picariello's own words to summarize all of the works or all of the essays 
And then we're going to go through the four that we chose. So I think that makes sense. So in the video, if I'm looking down a lot, it's because I'm actually reading here. Just FYI. Okay. So these are all the the essays that are actually covered. Uh, Alan I. Bailey begins by discussing the polarized and politically charged reactions to Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Stephen Johnson argues that Nolan's films raise interesting issues for democratic political communities, but ultimately offer unsatisfying answers to these questions. In Picariello's own chapter, he discusses the heroism of sober expectations, where he argues that in not expecting too much from his fellow citizens, Nolan's Batman has a great deal in common with America's founders. And William J. Berger uses Nolan's films to discuss the legitimacy of Batman's actions and points out the unstable ground on which this legitimacy rests. Ian J. Drake and Matthew B. Lloyd discuss Batman in the context of Plato's tripart apartheid division of the human soul and ask about the consequences for the city of Gotham and for Batman himself of a soul governed by spiritedness rather than reason, which I recommend that one. Tony Spanakos puts Batman's actions in the context of Machiavelli's discourses on Livy and suggests that Batman functions in Gotham as a particular kind of Republican prince, taking extraordinary action to correct imbalances in the city, but never seizing political authority in perpetuity. Following on Spanakos' discussion of Machiavelli, we've got Daniel J. Goff, using Machiavelli's The Prince to discuss Bruce Wayne's adoption of the bat as his animal trademark, as well as the significance of Batman's brand of theatrics for the city of Gotham. I recommend both of those Machiavelli ones. Mark D. White discusses Batman in the context of Gotham City's criminal justice system and asks about Batman's peculiar relationship to the city's law enforcement and legal institutions. I recommend that one as well. And my subtitle to that chapter was Batman is a jerk, which I call him that a lot. Donovan doesn't like it. Mohammed Al-Hakim explores Batman's treatment of criminals and tries to establish the Dark Knight's philosophy of punishment. Christina M. Knopf tracks societal fears over time and connects this with representations of the Scarecrow. Salvatore James Russo examines the role of mass media in Gotham City and contrasts this with changing attitudes towards mass media among Americans. And Carolyn Coca tracks changes in 20th century feminism and connects these to changes in the Batgirl character over time. And then the final chapter follows an observation that Jeff Clock makes about Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, that Miller's work is not so much violent as it is more graphic and more realistic about the violence that has always inhabited superhero narratives. And Aidan Diamond, the writer of this essay, extends this insight to Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, which... This was a good essay, actually, because people don't like that film, asking us to consider the politics of Batman's violence within and beyond this notably violent film. I always say to people, my Batman brands people and they get really upset. So because <laughs> they don't like that film. So just uh, we'll talk about this as, as a whole. How did this do? Um, but there are some really great essays in there. And I do recommend the Plato, the two Machiavelli ones, um, the Batman Dawn of Just B- BVS one, and then the, po- the police working with Batman. But we have four that we are going to be focusing on. Now, I do want to say that <laughs> we're going to be talking politics, obviously. And I think current events and current political climate, the current political climate will pop up. I've told this guy that no ad hominem attacks. 
But, you know, to quote my good friend Donovan, uh, Sam is a grown-ass man, so he can say whatever he wants to say, but the viewpoints and opinions of Sam do not reflect the stance of Batgirl the Oracle. Remember that you don't... <laughs> Remember that the only thing you can count on from me is that there are two things I can't stand in this world, people who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. So those are the only two things that I, it's a quote, it's a joke. I was like, not theirs. Um, I thought yes. we were avoiding the swears, Stella. But also the swear that was. I told you I was going to use one swear. There it was. <laughs> Do I get one free card too? It depends on what it is. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, and I also want to trigger warning. I warn people before though that uh, I will out you as a Christian. Uh, we worked at a Christian institution, so it's not too much of a stretch of imagination. So we, I think religion will pop up inevitably. I mean, I certainly have a question about it in um, the fake news article as well. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah. So just be aware that we are going to talk some politics and stuff, but it, we're not going to be yeah. like doing some stuff for 2020, whatever that is. I, I think we won't go crazy. Let's just say that. Don't be pushing your liberal agendas on people. Oh, okay. Here we go. Are you ready to begin? I'm ready. Okay. So our first essay that we're going to delve in is actually by the editor. So I I didn't do that purposefully, but actually I I just really liked this one, but I've got some questions. I think it's a hard one to also wrestle with. So this Mm -hmm. is The Heroism of Sober Expectations by Damien K. Picariello. Sam, would you be able to give us a brief summary of his thesis? What's this guy saying? So he's talking about how Gotham and Batman reflect something that is very similar with our founders in America and our country as a whole. So he quotes Madison, James Madison, and says, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections of human nature? And so he's arguing that the view that the American founders took founders took of human nature, which was that, to use his phrase, it was a mixed bag, like it's this mix of good and evil, evil, that the documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution had a a sober view of humanity, and yet they still thought it was worthwhile to do this American project. He says, the author, that that is really analogous to what we see within the Batman universe, and specifically with Batman. He does not expect Gotham and its people to be perfect. He expects them to be people, and yet he still sees them as worth serving. So he has a sober expectation of Gotham and its people as the founders had a sober expectation of our country. Right. Okay. So this one, this was really interesting. I'm glad you brought up that quote because I I actually had that marked as well. So now we're all done with that. But it's sort of this idea of everyone just needs to do better. Like that's all that can be expected. And so my, my initial thought, you know, and, and I should say with some of these essays will absolutely be in the world of Batman, but pulling out of that as well for humanity. And, and I might have sidetrack that I feel like connect to these essays, but uh, go elsewhere, but whose standard of, of better. And is it, constant like do you always you try to do better and then once you reach this level you keep trying to do better you just try to hit a it that's kind of where I am with this one of like do better who's standard and and how do we know that we've met it do we ever stop do we keep going both in the world of Batman as well as outside that world so what are your thoughts on that well either Pico Riello doesn't know or he doesn't necessarily want to say 
And, and I say that because I'm looking at, like on page 41, when he's talking about Ra's al Ghul, he talks about a standard of, and he's quoting, true justice, which is, which is a quote from Ra's al Ghul. And so there's this assumption that, that they know what true justice is. And it's, it's absolutely similar with the founders, too. They speak of these lofty ideals as if there's just an understanding of what those things are. I mean, if we're looking at the founders, like within the Enlightenment, there was an understanding of what certain things meant. And so when they said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when they talked about pursuing a more perfect union, that people knew generally what that meant. Like there were the tools to define it. But what was interesting is not all of those tools, I don't think, were necessarily objective things. I mean, because that's what makes the enlightenment, the enlightenment that you can, if you say something enough and you say it smartly, then that, that, that becomes what's true. A lot of the language the founders use was in reference to scripture, but you, you press on them and you press on their beliefs and they're, they're not Orthodox Christians at all. So they're appealing to something that's above humanity without an actual objective base beyond just an agreement that they have within this world of what those things are. I wonder if that's true when they talk about true justice, like within the Batman world, if there's this understanding of what it is. But then I'm not sure because they talk about, the author talks about different kinds of justice that are there. They talk about in Batman Begins, the conversation that they have within the car of Batman's view of justice and her name his childhood friend, Rachel, Rachel, and they talk about opposing views of justice. So for hers, it was more flexible for Batman, at least at that point, or for Bruce Wayne, the young Bruce Wayne, it was more rigid. And so I'd like to think about that too, is, are there not just, are they stating that there's true justice, but are there actually different kinds of justice? Because it seems like within the Batman universe that there's, there's perfect justice or rigid Mm -hmm. justice, but then there's something that's more fluid. And, and, and I, I wonder if that's true. Yeah, which then that would mean that people have their own idea of it. And so my idea of what I could be doing to do better could be different from yours as well. So yeah, it does get into, it's more subjective potentially. Right, right. Because he even says on page 43, the start of the last paragraph, he says one sort of justice, which means that there is another sort of justice. Mm-hmm. Bruce seeks something that's perfect, symmetrical, without compromise. She, Rachel Dawes, believes in something that is imperfect and laden with compromises and sacrifices, which to his point is eventually where Batman gets, but he still has this sense of justice that's, that's pushing him. And right. Ra's al Ghul kind of represents the, the most extreme version of what that is. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I I think it's also this one, too, that uh, with the compromises, you know, with the Dark Knight, where Batman and Jim, they decide that for the good of Gotham, they have to perpetuate this lie, which, you know, you'd think lie, that's a negative thing. That's not. But is it, you know, for for the sake of, of the good of everything? Yeah. And Officer Robin just chastises Gordon for that. You know, they're, they're in the hideout apartment and, and I don't remember the line, but it was something like your hands look plenty bloody to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like judgment. And I wonder is, is that more of the objective view of the Batman universe or is Mm -hmm. that just his youthful naivete that he can't conceive of justice looking more than just one way? Is that like an early version of Batman later on? Robin will become a little more, he'll have more sober expectations. Yeah. Yeah, Robin in general always I felt like was more optimistic um and looked at the to the bright side of it even when 
Dick Grayson became Nightwing and even when he became a Batman for a short time, I feel like he kept that optimism inside of him. I don't know if it's a Bruce Wayne situation. And even if you compare them, which you shouldn't really compare traumas, but they both lost their parents just in different ways. Yeah. So I I don't know if it's somehow Batman, Bruce Wayne's worldview is, is potentially different from someone else's. And that's how his idea of justice is different from other people's. Mm-hmm. Well, to to affirm then, Pirello and some of what he's saying, I mean, he's he doesn't quote this, at least I don't think so, but the Constitution talking about pursuing a more perfect union. I mean, the idea is there's this ever push towards something that, that may or may not be achievable. Like Ra's al Ghul would say it's achievable and we'll kill and we'll destroy civilizations to get there. And Batman, it seems, would say it's it's not worth killing and destroying cities and civilizations to get there as long as we're moving ever towards this thing. And that very much is an American idea, this this inevitable progress. And Batman seems to he seems to believe in that. Now, one one biblical idea that really struck me was on at the bottom of 40 and top of 41, where, again, he's quoting Madison, what is government itself, but the greatest of all reflections of human nature. But then he says, Madison, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And I w- I've thought a lot about that, because in a sense, biblically, that's not that's not quite true. I mean, the biblical story is that humanity moves towards the end of all things, that God comes back and judges the world. And yet is still reigning as king even after that point. And so there still is an authority structure that's there even after the end of the world within the biblical story. And so it's it's something even beyond what America says, this idea that government seems to be, or authority structures seem to be this inherent good. They're not just there as a restraint against evil. They're, they're there for good purposes as well. Which is way back in the old testament remember they wanted they wanted a king and everyone's like are you are you sure you really do do you understand what that means yeah and then they get crazy saul and it's and it's not what they wanted but but that doesn't mean that that position is is throw outable that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that that kingship is bad. It just means that that person didn't fulfill it. And that's the biblical story that there is someone who can actually come and fulfill it. So the, so again, another subtle point where the founders were, were Christian influenced, but yet a lot of what they perpetuate isn't, isn't Orthodox Christian story. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the founders and then by extension, Batman here, given this essay, sell people short, or do you think like, yeah, this makes sense. I mean, this is the fall, of course humans are fallible and they're going to mess up. So you can't put too much faith in them and just ask them to do a little bit better. And that's all he can do. If Gotham is meant to be this microcosm of the world, it, it seems like, and Gotham always needs saving. And, and anybody at any time walking on any street at night is liable like just to die. I mean, it, it, it seems as if Gotham is this extreme version of the world. Or, or at least it's this narrowed version of it. So I think that, I think the Batman universe, it sells people short, but it's, it's, it's some of the limitations of we're dealing with a city that's meant to represent the world. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like it, I mean, Batman's always been dark. That's, that's, that's such a, that's such a theme. And there, there has to be something that's worth fighting. So I feel like to, if they overemphasize things at the other end, then we'd be talking about, you know, car, Disney cartoon land and it, and it <laughs> wouldn't feel real. 
Yeah. You know, I don't think that the Batman, the universe, it doesn't skew as far as, as like the darkness of Watchmen. Black Mirror gets, gets pretty close, but mm-hmm. collectively, I don't think it does. I mean, but I think that I don't know if I would have consciously thought about Batman viewing humans as this mix of good and bad, unless I'd read this. Mm-hmm. I think I would have said Batman thinks that people are really bad and maybe mostly bad, but still worth saving. Yeah. So this to me is kind of resurrected a, a more holistic Batman, this argument. Yeah. That there's perhaps more hope than we might see in him. Right. Yeah. Right. I do want to get to that city versus the world or domestic versus global. Cause I think that was a huge point that was brought up here, but. I wonder if Batman's the one holding Gothamites accountable, who or what holds Batman, and I think also Jim Gordon, because he's kind of at the same level, accountable. Because it seems like in this essay, it's all Batman, you know, the citizen, the citizen, the citizen, but Batman can't be above justice and above the law, and, and where has he fallen short? I mean, what holds him accountable, and where has he fallen short, do you do you feel? Well, I think the author might make the same argument about the founders, I mean, that, that the founders are, are acting in the sense that Batman does with great authority. They're revolting. They're forming a new country. They're establishing this more perfect union. And, and you could, we could say the same, like, what, what is it that you think is, is above you? And, and the founders, their answers would have been really enlightenment influence. They would you know, speak vaguely about some kind of supreme being over them. And they're these universal ideals that appeal to all humanity, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, property, all, all of those things. But they're, they're understood in the enlightenment, but they're not rooted in something that's objective or really beyond just this world. Like they're not able to point to a sacred text. Like to say that all humans have dignity, you know, the Jews and Christians really have a leg up on everybody to say that because they can point to Genesis 1 and say, look, humans are made in the image of God. And so that gives an inherent worth to them. Whereas I hope everybody believes that there's dignity, but there's not always something that's there that you can point to outside of other than just wanting it to be true to say that that's, that's what it is or that's where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't really see, and I think we'll talk about this in a, in a later essay, like what the belief system is of Gotham and, and religion isn't really treated the best. So you kind of wonder what is that overlying power? I think for me, in my experience of reading comics, and then I guess the Nolan verse, I would say almost Alfred, I think is someone who mm. keeps or holds Bruce accountable, even though Bruce doesn't necessarily listen. And then, yeah, Drake, Robin, John Drake, or whatever his name is, I, I think is is someone that holds or at least brings like these ideas up to Jim, though Jim's conscience, I think, especially throughout the dark Dark Knight Rises, I think, is always holding him accountable. But in the comics verse, I think it's very much the Batman family holds mm. Bruce accountable. Barbara Gordon is great about minus doing Barbara's this. Brother, huh? That's, I mean, minus Barbara's brother, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yes, yeah. Barbara I mean, Gordon is someone who wants to believe the best in him, right? Yeah. yeah. In in his in his son, which shows his conscience and maybe blindness. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara might say. Yeah. But yeah, so Barbara will hold Bruce accountable. Dick Grayson will hold Bruce accountable. And oftentimes Bruce doesn't listen to people. But I think if uh, there's not really anyone maybe above Batman, but in the comics verse, but I feel like his peers or the people that he surrounds himself with, he does so purposefully so that they, they hold him accountable. Like, hey, you've stepped over the line here. Let's pull back. So that's why I feel like how how much outside of the Nolan verse does Alfred function as a check against Batman? Like in, it's in a the, big one. Yeah, I'm actually in my current. I know he's sassy in the ones I've read, but I don't, <laughs> sure I don't know more than that. 
Yeah, with him, and it's similar actually to to Nolan's because I'm actually now in 2001 with my vintage and he just left Batman because Batman was just like being a big crybaby. He's like, you know, I've had enough. I'm I'm getting out of here. So sometimes he leads. So Alfred very much is sometimes sarcastic, but also very pointedly like, hey, this is wrong. You need to rethink what you're doing. But again, Bruce, you know, if Bruce, he's going to do what he's going to do. But he knows about experience. Like he's not... He, he's not doing those. I, I don't think he's not doing a lot of those same things over and over. No, I don't think there's repeated activity. I mean, I feel like he does, you know, the, this is not the, the right podcast for, but repeatedly like against some of the, the women characters that he has in his lineup, like he doesn't give them as many chances. I feel like uh, mm. versus the, the male. So there are some things that I see repeated, but no other mistakes yeah. he makes. He, he does not make again. And he doesn't kill. That is also true. There's always that. I mean, and so it it seems like even within the Batman universe, there are these ideals that he holds to, these almost enlightenment things that govern him. And maybe they're articulated by some of these people around him, like you've named, but it seems like they're just, again, like the enlightenment with the founders, like they're floating and they're there. It's not stated where they come from. It's not stated how they can assume they're so objective, but but those are there. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. otherwise, otherwise, how do you live? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wrote at the bottom of one of these pages that, some of what's coming up in this chapter is that dynamic between act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism of, of how Batman behaves. I mean, act utilitarianism is primarily concerned about the outcome of something. And rule utilitarianism is I'm going to do something that's good for the world because this is the rule and I'm going to do it that way every time regardless of, of what happens. And I think Batman starts a lot of his career, to Piccarello's point, mm-hmm. starts it as a rule utilitarian person and then moves into act where he's focusing on the outcome. Because there's lots of things that Batman does that, that he should not do, but almost never are those things done without, in his mind at least, a good reason. Mm-hmm. The same with the founders. I mean, you know, they, they killed, they revolted, they overthrew a country, but they felt they did it with good reason. Yeah, yeah. Which I think goes to the point that sometimes Batman does do things that if you just look at, at that at a point, it's like, that's a little shady. He shouldn't have done that. But what are his motives and, and how will it end up? Like in The Dark Knight, where they lie, which seems very shady, but why were they lying? Because they felt like people yeah. finding out Harvey Dent was turned out to be a terrible person would have led to the downfall of Gotham and it had gone so far and people held him up as this white knight. So, yeah. Can we look at on 44, he talks a lot about Aristotle and his view of prudence. Oh, I I loved, I loved this part. Um, I think we'll get into even more philosophy when we get to the scarecrow chapter, but, but there's certainly some stuff to say here. One, I would, I would love to hear why he wanted to dwell on Aristotle's view of prudence rather than Plato's view, Mm. because Plato's got a lot to say about prudence or wisdom too, but, but he, he gives some good quotes and he's talking about how prudence, quoting him, prudence is responsive to context. And again, that's that veers towards the act utilitarianism thing. If I'm going to do this thing for an outcome and I've got lots of situations that are going to change what that action might be, it can't be the same every time. I mean, Plato would just Plato would call this wisdom. And mm. in his society at the top, he he gives that as his greatest quality to the guardians, to the right. rulers, to the philosopher kings. And he he organizes his society as a rule by the wisest. And Plato talks about Wisdom for him is knowledge of what is good for the whole. And if we're talking, I love this, if we're talking about what is good for the whole, you have to have some authority who states what that is. 
and and to your point in the batman world it's largely batman who does that he mm-hmm. He's unchecked, you know, beyond some friends coming in and saying, hey, think about this. He's the one stating what these things are. And so it's yeah. his prudence, it's his wisdom that, that wins the day. But again, I, a, a biblical parallel of this is, I think a really misread book of the Old Testament is, is the book of Proverbs. I mean, you could pull out any two Proverbs and they, they might seem to contradict each other. And, and so either, either they do, and we should throw out the Bible, or the or <laughs> And I, and, but really, but what seems to be going on is the book of Proverbs is about real life. It's not saying these are 10 commandments that you should follow always and forever and in perpetuity, but it's saying that there are situations where wisdom looks differently in different mm-hmm. situations for different people. Now that's not saying that truth is relative, it's like far from it. It's saying that truth is so cool and wisdom is so deep that it might manifest itself differently in different situations. And so I hear Plato saying that. I hear Aristotle saying that. I hear Batman saying that, though I think Batman sometimes might abuse that for, for his own agenda at times. Mm, yeah. Uh, yes, that is why I don't like out-of-context Bible quotes, because you need like that full context to understand, well, what is this one line that you're pulling out, and, and what is it actually saying in context with everything? Right. Do you feel like, because there was another essay, and I think even one of the first ones or something, yeah, I'd, I don't want Batman to be as president was from our editor as well. Could he be a leader leader of Gotham or does he always have to sort of stand behind the scenes and, and not? Because I'm, I'm thinking about Plato and that uh, virtues of the state and, and which of those groups would he be a part of? Would he actually be kind of the guardian, not the guardian, the the soldier type, right? Would that be more in line with Batman? And I think that's one of the Machiavelli essays too pointed to that, that he's not, that's not his role, the leadership. It's being one of the soldiers and on the ground. I'd say it depends on which world we're talking about. Are we talking about Batman being president within the Batman world? Or are we talking about Batman being present, president within our world? I mean, and, and maybe both are the same answer. I, I almost see it as less likely that Batman could be president within, within our world because Batman is at times so inflexible on some of these ideals, but yet, and, and so there, there's a political nuance that just isn't there. I mean, there's so, there are also social norms that he's not just not going to do, but then he's also able to in, make his positions and actions incredibly nuanced. And the public square, especially in 2020, like we don't like nuance. That mm-hmm. takes time, that takes effort, that takes sacrifice. And most people in this world don't want to do those things. They, they want to they package up everybody. Um, which one was it? Was it Frank Miller's where they feature the president so much on the, on the TV and, and had a, had a storyline almost of what the president was saying? I think you might be right, yeah. The Dark Knight Returns. It was one of the it was one of the big Frank Miller ones, but it's it's a president within the Batman world that's just totally a sham, and he's like a cartoon character. I mean, he's like he's like he's like the most Reaganized TV version of of a president, and within the Gotham universe and world that that works. And 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 some could argue we're seeing that now. You know, I, I don't think it's ad hominem to talk about how different <laughs> president, yeah. how different of a president Donald Trump is. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if we're talking about qualifications of presidents of the forty-four before him, I mean, he's he's the least qualified for what's gone before. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he's the most qualified for what he's doing, but yet he's he's this personality that's certainly been enriched by by TV, and it's and it's an exceptional thing where he is. So maybe in a post-Trump world, I don't think Batman could could make it as president because Batman brings nuance and and he brings a 
he brings an inflexible morality at the same time. And he's able to balance those. Like I like show me a president that's done that. Right. Mm, yeah. Yep. But okay. what it yeah. could it would, would I vote for him on the ticket? Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. He wouldn't oh make God. it through the primaries, but I, I'd love to see him on there. I mean, and and look at, look at 45. Here's another thing that's, if we're talking about Batman being president, look at all the things that he inherits. Mm. He gets his wealth. He gets his company. He gets his property. He gets Alfred. I mean, he's got a lot of night privilege Mm -hmm. in his life that, that puts him into a position to be able to do these things. Yet for me, the reason why Batman is my favorite is there's, there's no superpower within him. And yes, he's handed a lot of these things that, that he inherits, but he does something with them. I mean, and, and I think that's if, if, if we're, I mean, I made a play on the words, but if we're talking about what, if we're talking about white privilege and the problems that are there, and that's a big discussion now, the, the nuanced or next evolution of that discussion is, okay, well, let's recognize the privilege that's there and how can that be harnessed for good? And Batman is, is an example of somebody who does that. He recognizes these things that he did not earn, that he absolutely does not deserve. And he engages with those things in a way for the good of his people. And, and, he, and he suffers more than anyone because mm-hmm. of that. So we've been saying Batman a lot. And Bruce Wayne, while the same person, is really not necessarily the same person. I mean, does he? should he follow the same rules as the, the rest of the citizens of Gotham? Do you feel like he is doing better, doing what he should be doing with his wealth and things like that? Is it hypocritical what Batman's expectations and, and as Bruce Wayne, maybe he doesn't meet those expectations? What do you think about that alter ego? Well, I, I think that both... Both versions of this human, Batman and Bruce Wayne, are engaging the best and the worst parts of themselves. I mean, Bruce Wayne, you know, and it's part of it's just show. You know, he's this this playboy, and he parties, and and he he engages that perception and plays it up. Yet he also is like the world's greatest philanthropist, and and, and Bill Gates on drugs, and he's giving tons of money <laughs> to the world, and it's doing great things. And and so, in a sense, you see him, Bruce Wayne, doing kind of the best and the worst. Batman does a lot of that too. I mean, Batman does the the best in the sense of he's going out and he's taking upon himself the burden of fighting these people and fighting what he sees as the evil within his city. But yet the way that he does that is is illegal and, and breaks moral codes and often is fueled by pride and fear and all of these things. So I, I almost see both versions of this human as going to the polls of, of where they are. And one does it in a public way, Bruce Wayne, and one does it in a private way, which is Batman. Mm. Like that's a nuanced character. Again, why he's my favorite. Like <laughs> there's such a, there's such a depth that's here. We get yeah. like four people in one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to such an extent people that I gave him, I think Superman for all seasons and he refused to read it. He refused. He gave it back to me. I think you gave it to me twice and it got returned to you twice. I didn't remember giving the first time, but clearly I really wanted to read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got a question about uh, domestic versus global or what my notes say. And I've got two quotes. One's on 42 and I think the other one's on 54. 
uh, let's see here. Batman doesn't want to save the world. He wants to prudently, there it is again, improve his corner of it, taking account of the limits imposed by human nature that make Gotham City to say nothing of the world, both beyond saving and not in need of saving. And then 54, I think he restates right before a portion of virtue and honor says, and Gotham remains safe from those who would destroy the city in the name of saving the world. So he ends up, uh, at least with Dark Knight Rises, saving the world. I guess I didn't have a real question formulated here, but um, do you think that should be his sole responsibility, just focus on Gotham City? Or do you think because he is this hero, he should have a wider viewpoint as well, and he should be working for Gotham City, but the world as a whole? So so here's where I'll need you to help me. I mean, I part of it, I think, might be the limitation of what's going on. I mean, Gotham City is, is so much meant to be this representation of, of something bigger than itself. You know, it, it's, it's New York, it's America, it's, it's the world, it's humanity. You know, it's, it's all of those things at, at the same time. So I don't know how much the Batman universe could sustain Batman or Bruce Wayne going far beyond Gotham. I mean, that, that feels like it would break some of the rules of the universe and, re- and would require a lot of things to be shifted. So I don't even know if that would, if that would be possible. But more than that, again, I don't know if it's, even, if it's even necessary. I mean, Gotham is a layered and dark and a glorious enough place to be able to show all of these things. I mean, the, the biggest limitation of Gotham is that it's, it's a city, that it's urban. So you, you know you you miss the suburban you miss the rural the rural aspect of the world so so we're we're not seeing that but at least with urban we are seeing where the majority of humanity lives mm-hmm. so like could the Batman world sustain Batman and Bruce Wayne going yeah you know, going elsewhere going yeah out? so there are so I'm thinking I guess of two things in the comic world he has been a part of the Justice League several times and so that could either be you know more global or just you know of America. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he did, with Grant Morrison, have Batman Incorporated, where he was in charge and he'd have different Batman-like characters in different parts of the world. So it wasn't necessarily him, but he had a team there, so he was able to, to branch out. Just because I, you know, I think of him as this hero, I feel like he should be responsible for a more global Uh, protection. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like it goes directly to this essay that we should have reasonable expectations for him. And perhaps his do better for the world is just his corner of it, which is Gotham City. Which hopefully in turn could influence the world. I mean, again, if Gotham is a lot like New York City, you know, so goes New York City, so goes the world in in some respects. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So perhaps I was having too high of expectations <laughs> for Batman. Um, I feel like, I mean, my only other question was just a nuance in Picariello's verbiage or vocabulary here. This is on page 54. Mm-hmm. And it's the end of the one the second paragraph yeah. says all told the people of Gotham merit a decidedly mixed verdict, which is perhaps why Gordon and Batman have faith in them, even as they don't always trust them. And I just thought very interesting, like making this distinction between trust and faith. And I wondered what your thoughts were on those particular words. And, and do you feel like there is this big, uh, well, I shouldn't say big, but do you feel like there's a distinction between those two words? Yeah, I think there is in real life, and I think there is for for the author as well. And and I cheated a bit, and I saw this in your notes, so I was able, <laughs> I was able to actually think about this before, because sure. I didn't I didn't mark that 
the, the verbiage, as you said, the first time I read it. So he, here's what I think it's saying at, the more I thought about it, especially this afternoon. So he says, why Gordon and Batman have fate in them, the people of Gotham, as they don't always trust them. It sounds like he's using the word fate here of mm. acting as if something should be. Mm. And he's using the word trust as if they don't actually believe that that's what's going to happen. I see. And so it seems like I, I, I read those differences there. So the faith that they have in the people of Gotham is, you know, I, I should have faith in them. I should act as if they are worthy of this thing. I should, I should make my choices as if I believe that assume the best might be the way to put it, but prepare for the worst. Mm. They don't actually trust them and they don't believe that it'll really happen. You know, pre- prepare for what, what might actually go wrong. Because otherwise, if he'd use those in different sentences, I just would have assumed they were, they were synonyms. But to have those right beside each other, I, I, those are different things. Do you feel like in the Christian sphere, those are also two different things? I, I, I was thinking a lot about that as well. I mean, and that's Christianity calls for faith in a lot of things. And mm-hmm. it calls for Christians to live as if something is true, even though you cannot objectively know, you cannot objectively see it. And because it's not objectively seen, then that, that doesn't necessarily make it untrue. Uh, but that, that idea of trust, I don't think in the Christian world would quite be the, the way that they would use it here. Because the way that he's using trust is that, that that trust isn't merited, that they don't actually believe that it will happen. I mean, in the Christian world, with, trust is that it, it deals with a belief of something happening, but it's... For the Christian, you you believe God's going to do what it is that that He says He's going to do. Mm-hmm. So the faith aspect is: I look at this story, this biblical story, and and I live as if that is true. And because I'm living as if this is true, I'm I'm putting my trust in it. I mean, so faith is almost the conceptual aspect of it. Of I believe this, and mm-hmm. the trust is reflected in the actions that I take. Okay. I think now now theologically, I'm not sure. You know, if some theologians would get upset with that, but I. I think <laughs> Both, both, of, yeah, both of those both of those show up in the Christian world. Mm-hmm. You have faith, which means you believe in that which you cannot see, and that results in a way that you live, and the way that you live is in a trusting way, and so therefore you do certain things. But for this quote, Gordon and Batman have faith in the people of Gotham. They believe mm-hmm. it could be this, but they're not going to assume or trust that that's actually what's going to happen. Gotcha. Yeah. Well said. I hope so. <laughs> Uh, those were the questions and notes I had. Were there any other things you want to discuss from this particular essay? The only thing, and I, I know this has been discussed in so many other places, but just is is the Christological figure or the Christ figure that Batman is. Mm-hmm. And I and it, that peaked in my mind on page 55 when they were talking about uh, that they attack him. And Batman begins maddened by drugs. They attack him. Uh, the Dark Knight, they turn on him and reject him. And the Dark Knight rises. They collaborate with Bane and his faux revolutionary project. And, and Batman yet rises from, from the pit, from this grave. They're chanting rise when Batman or Bruce Wayne at that point is actually able to come out of this death that he's endured. And he cannot conquer the, the demons that are there, which is, which is Bane, without having gone through this almost death and then resurrection sequence. And that's not necessarily saying that Chris Nolan is specifically referencing Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's just, there's this universal piece of, of death and resurrection being a pathway to ultimately conquering something. I mean, we see it, uh, we see it in Harry Potter. We see it literally in every story 
or you long for it in every story. But with The Dark Knight Rises, it just, it's, it's really, really clearly shown with that aspect of rise. And he mm-hmm. could not rise again until he fell at a depth that, that he'd never been at before, physically and emotionally. To a certain extent, his journey, at least with the people, is opposite of Christ because Christ was so well, you know, ushered in, Palm Sunday, everyone's loving him, and then how quickly that changed, whereas Batman really never had that popularity. With the people, I think with kids, like he was this legend and and they really enjoyed making stories of him, so that there's a similarity there. But at the end of Nolan's Dark Knight Rises... Now people celebrate Batman because he sacrificed himself. And so there's that switch on that particular theme. But yeah, I also get what you're saying there with, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like not many people really think of him as a Christ-like figure. A lot of people like to do that with Superman, but Superman more has the the Moses aspect, actually. So there's a, but yeah, it's all about interpretation. What was Moses though, but but a Christ figure too. But yeah, to narrow it down, absolutely a Moses figure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, Batman does get angry, uh, you know, kind of Jesus smash style at, at all the about citizens. The righteous <laughs> anger. <laughs> For sure. His righteous anger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, anything else on the heroism of sober expectations? I don't think so. It was, it was great. It was a good one. And again, I did not pick this because it was the editor, but I, I actually really thought, wow, that's an int- I've I had not thought about that. So, yeah, and I guess work and, and look at that one. Yeah. And inevitably I had to choose one of the Nolan essays because there are so many. So I guess it was just odds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one we're going to do is politics as the quote, the product of everything you fear end quote scarecrow as phobia entrepreneur by Christina M. Knopf. I'm going to pronounce her name. So Sam, <laughs> what is the summary of this essay's thesis? Mm. So this looks at how Scarecrow preys on personal fears and political fears and how Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. Scarecrow, and here, here I'm quoting what I think is the thesis on 160, is a phobic entrepreneur who manipulates fear and besieged Gotham City in ways that are historically analogous to the politics of fear in troubled America. So the way that Scarecrow engages in people's personal fears and political fears reflects the times that that particular story is, is written in. And he, or excuse me, she goes through and she chronicles several instances of, of when that happens and unpacks fear as a negative tool, but also fear as a positive tool. And I would love to talk about that, how it is both a positive and negative tool yes, yes. for Scarecrow and for Batman. For sure, yeah. And I do say, uh, or when I was re-going through this and getting prepared for this, I feel like there's a, a good connection between what we'll talk about here and the fake news, too. I feel like some of the ideologies and the fact that Gothamites don't necessarily have any ideologies pops up. So just right. be aware that some things we say might be repeated in the next one or vice versa. Uh, well, let's start with, yeah, I do wonder to what extent are Scarecrow and Batman similar? Mm. Do you feel like Batman is... There's some serious overlap. I mean, the the quote that most struck me with that was on 168, and just a few lines from the top, where Knopf says, Batman, who because of childhood trauma, used fear to fight crime, and Scarecrow, who because of childhood trauma, uses fear to commit crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's the most, not simplistic, but succinct way that she puts it, of these two people have an overlap of childhood trauma, and yet they respond to it in different ways. Both use fear, 
but they're using it for different purposes. Now, I don't know if this essay has it, but there was another, oh, it was probably the cop essay, actually, that I said Batman's a jerk. Batman uses fear as a tactic also to wrestle information from perps. Like he'll throw them, and you've seen the Nolan film, so you know that he, at least probably once in every film, he threw someone off of a height in order to get some sort of information. I mean, is that a, is that using fear as a criminal tactic? Could you say that that's, that's. Well, it's, it, I mean, Sherlock Holmes always said he would be like the world's best thief if you wanted to use his power for evil. But then you see Sherlock Holmes breaking the law all over the place, but for, but for the greater good. I mean, so there's, there's a, a big pattern of a hero using something illegal or something slightly immoral, like a tactic of fear, in order to achieve something that's that's greater. Mm. And again, it's almost the the act utilitarianism thing. I mean, Batman focuses so much on the outcome, not to where it gets out of control, but mm-hmm. but the outcome to him seems to weigh more than the actual method, the the method of the moral or the the morality of the method itself. Yeah. Okay. So as long as he's saving someone, it's okay that he's going to throw them off the roof. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm, but if he can go to sleep at night, or he doesn't, he can go to sleep in the day, uh-huh. and knowing that he's at least he's met that rule and he's okay with it. Okay, we should get our chaplain to add to the applicate the twenty page app application of like, what do you think about this situation, and then have them write something of like, would this you throw is- someone off of a building if it meant that you could save a city from a bomb? Yeah. oh boy let's see okay so yeah let's get into this yeah so fear i feel like presented in here uh mostly is a negative thing but do do you feel like it's always a a negative attribute or should always have this negative connotation yeah i don't think it always is and and i don't think you think it either because we've talked a little bit about this especially when we talk about plato Mm -hmm. i mean plato's definition of courage is fearing the right things right it's it's not what George Clooney says in Three Kings in that awesome scene where he's like, you know what courage is? It's you do the thing that you're really <laughs> afraid of and you get the courage after. And that's not it. That, that, or that's not at least what Plato would say. Plato mm-hmm. would say, no, you're afraid the whole time before, during, and after, but you're fearing that which you should. Because there are things that you should fear. And biblically, this matches up too. The Bible talks about fearing God as this ultimate judge and sovereign king that has power over all things. And some people, I think, try to, to tone that down by saying, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a respect of God. And we should have that too. But no, it really seems like there's a fear that's there. I mean, for a Christian, there, there is nothing to fear. You know, Christ protects you from all things, but yet at the same time, you worship somebody who made the world and also can destroy it and who has promised to destroy it and, and to yeah. save the remnant and all those things. Those are scary things that you're dealing with. So, mm-hmm. so just because fear is involved doesn't mean that something is wrong, immoral, or, or sinful. And Plato, you know, pagan of pagans, believes that <laughs> fearing the right things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he... In his society, we said this a little before, he puts the guardians at the top, he puts the soldiers on one side, and he puts the tradespeople over here. And the moral that he associates with the soldiers, which you talked about, Batman could also fit in that aspect of society, the moral that he puts with them or the virtue that he puts with them is that of courage. Mm -hmm. And how much do we think of a modern day soldier being someone who's fearless, which for Plato, that's not what it is. It's somebody who's fearful, but fearful in the right way. Yeah. Of that which that person should fear. 
Yeah, which is is certainly counterintuitive to a certain extent, but I think it is a necessary component of of courage and also understanding like, you know, how do I engage with this thing that I'm fearful of now in this situation? Mm -hmm. I also feel like, I mean, I'm going to make another Last of Us Part 2 reference, which will annoy people potentially, but you won't care because you've not (laughs) listened to any of that. But I think there's this great uh, moment between Abby and Lev because Abby is one of the characters and she's going up this huge elevator and she has acrophobia. She's uh, afraid of everything. And Lev says, can I give you some advice? Just think about the good parts to fear. Like you run faster. You're more focused. You don't feel pain as much. Every bad feeling, your palm sweating, your heart racing, they're all signs you're actually stronger. So when you're afraid or you feel afraid, you should think about how your body is getting ready for what's coming only when weak may I carry my true strength. And uh, Lev is actually a character that was in a religious a re- religious society that's very similar to Christians. So I thought that was a good quote there. But yeah, I feel like there is a, a positive connection. That fear is not always negative, though I think Crane just focuses on all the negative aspects and the writers too. They take everything that society was going through at the bit of your time and then use Crane to bring that into the comic world. Right. Right. But it, it is nuanced to say, and I think that's a great quote. I don't, I don't know what it's from. I don't understand that at all, but the quote (laughs) itself is great in that fear, like physiologically hones your body. Mm -hmm. But, but also, and this is what I think Plato is getting at fear also morally shapes your soul like it helps conform your soul to the rules of the universe because there are things that you should fear in the sense of you should come under certain people or institutions and things and and when you're when you're under that group part of the maybe not only and maybe not even mostly the emotion that characterizes that it shouldn't necessarily be fear but that should be part of it i mean on 161 right before the the new section in in one of the batman comics it quotes scarecrow of of what lies beneath the veneer of civilization is what drives every choice you make your fear. And now Freud would, would say it's aggression and sex that drive you and that that's mm-hmm. what drives civilizations. And Marx would say it's class conflict. So, you know, everybody, and, and Nietzsche would say that it's power, desire for domination. So everybody's got an opinion on, on what's driving you, but Scarecrow's got a point. I mean, think of think of how often people are motivated by by fear. I mean, even if somebody is motivated to do something and it's great and it's good, often wrapped up in some small part of that is, uh, well, I'm worried or I'm fearful if I don't do this. I mean, Inside Out, the movie taught us you can have multiple emotions at one time mixed up together. So fear certainly is something that can play, play into an action alongside other things. Do you feel like Scarecrow and his tactics could be ever used as a source of good? Or do you think just like with how he's using it, it's he's always going to be a bad guy? Well, I think that Batman, in a sense, demonstrates some of those tactics. If we're talking tactics, just like using fear for a certain end, then then Batman does that too. I mean, there's the, give me the nuances of this, but in, in Batman Begins, there's the scene where Batman's fighting with Scarecrow and doesn't he spray him with his own gas? Yes. And, and that that works to advance the cause of Batman. I mean, that's literally the same tactic that Mm -hmm. Scarecrow would do out in the world as Jonathan Crane. So Mm -hmm. I think Batman harnesses those things for good. I mean, but, but the big question is, is should he? And and in a harder question is, could Batman be Batman without doing that? And uh, probably not. He'd be a more boring Batman. (laughs) 
which we can't have that. (laughs) Okay, so there is a bit of a critique on pedagogy, specifically, though, college professors. Yeah. Uh, This is 166, and I thought of you, actually, (laughs) just because of, you know, this stuff, this stuff that happened. So let's see. It says these criticisms or fears include arguments that the professorate is populated by ideologues trying to brainwash everyone (laughs) into their worldview while not adequately teaching useful skills to students. Mm -hmm. Um, And such worries. Oh, this is a longer quote. Okay, such worries have become increasingly pronounced in the political climate of the 2010s, which has been marked by the politics of fear as evidenced by such headlines as, quote, how Trump can end brainwashing on college campuses End quote and quote Donald Trump and the politics of fear End quote. Gosh, yeah. So as a well, I guess your thoughts on that particular that you're trying to brainwash everyone. Your thoughts on that, number one. And number two, how do you as a because you deal with tough subjects in humanities and now, like you said, you know, with US history and, and all the stuff that's going on right now, how do you how do you deal with this kind of stuff and, and training and teaching these young men and women without quote unquote brainwashing them? Mm, yeah. Well, brainwashing and, and propaganda and, and, and all those, it, it presupposes that something negative is being done. Mm. I feel like brainwash is at one end of the spectrum when it's negative and pedagogy or the Christian term discipleship is, is over here. But both of those are working to get a group or an individual to think and believe and do something at, at the end of the day. It's just a question of, does somebody like it? And then we're over here. Mm. Or does, it, does someone consider it okay? Or is it kind of culturally considered not okay? But, but I think it's deeper than that. I mean, I, I asked a, a one boss of mine at one point, what, what was it that we were meant to do within the classroom? If, if education is apprenticeship, then what, what does that look like? How, how much should a student in a class be apprenticed to me? And, and where I came out on that is, is the belief, and I, you referenced the situation kind of at the end of the year where there was a lot of discussion about some things I was teaching, especially as they related to race and the way that I was teaching them. And some of the defense that I gave within that is I'm not asking someone to agree with me. I'm not asking for someone to think the same ideas that I am, but I am asking them to think in the same rhythms that I am. At the end of the day, we might vote differently, we might live in different neighborhoods, and we might love different people, but yet I at least want you to understand the rhythms of how I'm approaching something. And as a teacher and as a historian, it's how I approach history. And and history is not relative, but history is also not something that's objectively accessible. We'll never have all the primary sources. We're never all there at that moment to see it. So there's always an aspect of bias and interpretation. And so just because bias is there doesn't mean necessarily that it's bad. What's bad is when you don't admit that Mm. you have a bias. So if we're talking about teaching somebody, sure, I'd love for them all to think the same thing and all of us, you know, to go and to, to be in the same marches together. But, but that's, not, that's not the goal because people are different. And a classroom is, is, a classroom is also very different than a home, and that's very different than, than any other sphere. And so within a classroom, I want to present a certain way of approaching a topic or a person or an idea, and I want someone to come alongside me and to think those same thoughts and then I want to equip them to go and to do that thinking on their own. And that might end up in different places. Now, I mean, I hope that if they're thinking in the same rhythms that 
those rhythms are good and a lot of us would end up at the same spot, but that's not, that's not always true because there's always more going on in somebody than just the rhythms that I'm giving them to, to try to think about it. I mean, the, to quote uh, Father Jerkins and his favorite historian, which was John Lukash, and a book that Lukash wrote called A Student's Guide of the Study of History, Lukash said in that that history is never definitive. It's primarily something that's descriptive. And what he's saying is like, I can't, and this is true of a lot of subjects, but especially of history, I cannot access definitively what history is. So I cannot give my students a definitive view of history and of what happened, but I can help describe it in certain rhythms and we can approach it with a certain posture. And that posture is that we should always come under it first before moving to critique. We should always look at the pieces of culture as shaping and showing like there, there are rules that help us live well within that. So if we're talking about what's happening here and what Crane, in a sense, is critiquing, I love that they talk about what was the, how they described what Crane, he, that he's fighting uh, his connection between fright and finance. Uh, and that's on, on 161. And, you know, he, he puts on these, these pauper's robes. He puts on a hangman's noose. He leaves education and kind of becomes, in the version of Scarecrow, the most extreme version that's opposite of academia but yet as dr jonathan crane he still is kind of he still is playing that that game so yes i I agree at the top of 166 that crane highlights unfavorable attitudes toward higher education in this society and 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 it's a it's another discussion let's get to if we're talking about the politics of fear and how that reflects kind of the times i didn't bring up trump the book did no, it, yes, it sure did. I didn't even know that there were such headlines, as, so yeah. I sort of laughed at that. I thought, okay, how's Trump going to do that? But it's interesting, just like the youth, because Robin, it, at the end of that paragraph, is he's saying people my age are already bombarded with teachers and parents and politicians trying to tell us how to act and what to think. We don't really need maniacs like Crane adding to the chaos and telling us, trying to tell us what to feel. So I guess he becomes an educator to us, or he's trying to anyways, even though he is Professor Crane. So he Mm -hmm. literally is. Do you feel like your role, though, also as educators to challenge? Do you continue to challenge viewpoints, even if their viewpoints might be the same as yours? Perhaps to challenge why they feel that way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's almost as bad for somebody to to believe something that I think is destructive as it is for somebody to believe something that I love, but to not really understand why or to believe that on 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 shaky ground you know Mm -hmm. the the house built on sand kind of thing yeah so yeah i i want to i'm not only going to present one view but i'm certainly not going to and i can't give equal airtime to everybody you know the 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 idea that i can pursue a completely holistic representation of voices just isn't attainable so i have to curate the voices that come in and so some are going to be louder than others, but absolutely I want some of those to challenge what people think. Now, I don't quite, I don't fully hold to the view of, you know, at the end of the year, I'm, I really wonder if my students know at all where I stand or 
<laughs> you know, I present it in such a way that they have no idea. That is, that is one teaching method. And, and I see value in that maybe within specific lessons, but, but as a whole year, I feel like I haven't taught my students if they can't to some degree predict how I would approach something. And the real successful teacher can have the students know what that teacher thinks and yet create an environment where opposition can still present itself. That's, that's the ideal classroom that I want to build is be able to bring out those views, be able to express mine to a degree and for us to actually be able to have a dialogue around those things. Yeah, absolutely. Which Crane does not want whatsoever. No dialogue. Yeah. No dialogue. (laughs) What were your, I mean, I just have one last quote that, that we can talk about, but um, yeah. Okay. What, uh, What other notes do you have on this particular one or discussion points? So this is a small one, but I wanted to ask more about it. At the bottom of 163, I referenced this, but it says, uh, with a black duster coat, flat top cowboy hat, and broken noose around his neck, Mm. the new scarecrow embodied violent Old West vigilante justice. What what color is the hat? Is it the same color each time the character is presented? And I ask because, you know, there's always the the white hat and the black hat in the old movies. But even Westworld as a show very much plays off of that duality (laughs) of, you know, you walk in, which hat are you going to choose, the white hat or the black one? And I don't remember what color Scarecrow's was. And I wondered if that was significant because the the costumes of these villains and superheroes matters a whole lot, especially when we get to Carolyn's essay. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm pretty sure that outfit so there was a redesign batman the animated series um when it first came out that version of scarecrow did not look like the one that they're talking about now when they redesigned it but i'm pretty sure he was always wearing that black hat but other representations of him oh well i guess it's like a straw hat i'm actually looking it up except for the hoods as you can see in some of the video game right, adaptations. right in the video game, yeah but uh yeah i can look it up and and well it's, it's, on certainly, that one. it's certainly not white so yeah. that that's significant. You know, yep. it's not Luke Skywalker wearing the, the white robes. Yeah. Uh, but then also there's the broken noose that's around his neck. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Old West, lynching was absolutely this, this form of, of yeah. justice out there. And it wasn't, it, at least in the Old West, it wasn't even primarily black people. It mm-hmm. was white people. It was Native Americans. It was people from Mexico who were, who were getting lynched in this vigilante justice. And so yeah. the fact that Crane wears that yep. puts him, I think... Well, I guess I would want to ask, is he wearing that as a claim of, I'm going to bring vigilante justice, look at my noose, it's going to be on you? Or is he bringing it sort of in the way he dons these pauper's robes of, I am a victim yeah. within the system. I've suffered uh, an injustice. Yep. Statement I don't know if Can you see? Yeah. Okay. So okay. the one on the far, that's the redesign. So I guess it kind of like legitimately a scarecrow design. And then now you've got this guy right here. Yeah. But this well, always reminded me of a preacher. It, I was going to say, it looks like a priest. Yep. Like those old school, which is interesting, right? Because uh, some people think that religion is kind of fear mongering too. You know, you got the people with the placard saying, you're all going to hell, that kind of thing too. Yeah. There's a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we'll I want to yeah. talk about Gothic Cathedral later when that comes up because there's <laughs> there's more than a little happening with religion there. Absolutely. That, that noose to me is almost a double symbol. It's yeah. almost this reminder of Scarecrow's coming to bring his own bring his own version of justice, but it's also him saying, "I am a victim of the system, this academic system which rejected mm-hmm. me. So I'm going to now subvert all of it, and I'm going to exploit my research and use it in the most." maniacal malicious way possible and he does it really well 
<laughs> yeah, and it's interesting, you know, that it's a broken news. I mean, what does that say, I guess, about death? Like that he, is that something that he doesn't even fear? Or, you know, is it something that he survived and now he's the one who's sort of perpetuating it? Because isn't there some quote about death? Oh, you know what I was thinking? Uh, am I thinking about Plato? And he talks about people fearing death and whether that's wise or not. I think I might be mixing uh, some stuff it up. Is, it is Plato through through the mouth of, of Socrates. Yeah, he, he absolutely talks about you should not fear. I mean, Socrates at the end of Plato's Apology says, I, I'm not going to, I do not fear death because I don't fully know what's there. Mm. How much sense does it make to fear that which we do not know? Yeah, for sure. Yep. And of course, they bring up some of the the great quotes of you know fear, don't yep. fear, fear yourself. And, and all those so yeah. I, I want to I want to kind of page through one sixty six on. Okay, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put my 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 trump cards on the table. Um, I, <laughs> How am I, I supposed to take? <laughs> I think He's that, laying them out, folks. Well, okay, because I, I, I want to build into it, and I want you to keep me honest. I, I see an argument of how we could maybe read Nump talking about how Trump equals Scarecrow. Mm. Right, so, so I want to I want to build to that. But I, I start I started thinking that on 166 and some of the, the quotes that you read. I mean, she specifically references these two articles about Trump and about the politics of fear. Or another one is the, the culture of fear. I, I may or may not have written an article called Trump's culture of fear. And, and that's that's an accepted thing that's out there. And Trump has been really open about how he how he wants to use fear as a tactic. He's he's absolutely named that. I mean he he wields groups and things as a way to be able to to influence. You know, b- blacks are thugs and Mexicans are mm-hmm. rapists and the Antifa are are, are modern day communists and, and and all are out to get you unless you you come in and stick with me. And then I think about some of the goals of Scarecrow. And it seems like Scarecrow, having been dominated by the world and the system and the man, it seems as if he wants to do that same thing too. Mm. And I also think that when, if someone's goal is complete domination of others, you've got to have some deep rooted fear or at least some deep rooted anger and anger and fear are, are always bosom buddies and, and right beside each other. And so I want to think about what is it that Scarecrow fears? I mean, and if I think that Scarecrow fears being controlled again by the system, mm. he, he fears being rejected by academia and by his peers and in his child when, when his childhood when he's made fun of. I think he fears that and he doesn't want to put himself in that position again. And and again, to to reference Trump here makes a lot of sense. I mean, Trump Trump seems to fear being dominated more than more than anything else. Mm. And I know you'll laugh at me, but the many have spoken of Trump's enneagram as. Oh no! <laughs> just give me twenty seconds. But people have spoken about Trump's enneagram as Wait, being. Can an you eight. pause, please? Explain because there might be some people who don't know what that is. So the enneagram is an ancient personality typing system where there are nine different personalities, where everyone fits largely within one of those nine. All nine have a negative way they could look and a positive way they could look. And the idea is that people don't shift from one to the other, but that you're really born and live into one of those nine. And what defines you within the Enneagram world, Enneagram is a word that means nine-sided figure because there's nine of them. What makes the Enneagram so great is it's not focused on people's actions. It's focused on people's motives. 
So people's actions might look really similarly, but what motivates them is different, and that would place them in a different number. And so an Enneagram 8 is called a challenger. And and lots of written people have written about Trump as being a challenger. And the thing that my wife is an eight too. She she is a challenger, a sanctified one, and I love her, but definitely an eight. And the things that eights fear or dislike more than anything isn't necessarily losing control, but they don't want to be controlled. And, and, and I just think so much about what Scarecrow does and how he responds, how he removes himself so from society, and then how he comes in and tries to influence it. There seems like there's this desire to not be dominated and then to try to come in and, and dominate. And, and, and Trump kind of takes the, the opposite method of rather than removing himself from society, he fully moves into the greatest position of power. But it seems like there's this desire to avoid being dominated or this desire to dominate at all costs, even if that leads to so much pain as Scarecrow experiences over and over and over and over again as he is, as he is defeated many, many times. Yeah. Being perceived of as weak potentially. Yeah. I, man, I rewatched the Nolan films just because they were popping up so much in here. And you, when he's dosed with his own toxin, he doesn't, like, he sees Batman. I don't know if you remember that scene, but Batman looks like demonic and there's, like, black stuff coming out of his mouth. And But he, like, is able to survive this highly concentrated gas. And I'm thinking now, or dose, I'm thinking now about Batman the animated series because I'm pretty sure that he had been dosed a couple times and, and what he had seen. But I, I imagine a lot of it would be, you know, be made fun of. I, I think they redid his history in New 52. And I think there is some abuse in his family and things like that. So I think that all sort of points t- towards what you're saying of, yeah, maybe this is what he's doing. He never wants to lose that control that he's he's gained over everybody. So then look at 169. And in that last full paragraph, maybe like four lines from the top, Uh, He says, his motives of revenge, his purpose of creating chaos, and his results in instigating violence hint at the tandem persuasive forces of fear and anger. Made apparent, and this just was tacked on, made apparent in the post-2016 political discourse. I mean, that sentence just as easily could have been about Trump, but Mm -hmm. it's not. it's It's about Scarecrow, but this pairing of perceived chaos and revenge and violence, or, or most articulately, these tandem persuasive forces of fear and anger. Now, those have kind of come up in post-2016 political discourse, but, but I'd argue myself, independently of you, that, that Trump is certainly the one stoking that. And again, I think that Knopf is saying that too, because look two lines down. She says, likewise, Corey Robin observes that the Trump's regime's resurrection of political fear has resulted in Americans turning against one another. Vulnerable populations from the undocumented to the LGBT community, from Muslims to Mexicans, are facing intensified harassment on the the street and surveillance, scrutiny, and worse from the state. I mean, they're, they're talking about a culture that's been created, which is like Scarecrow's dream to create such a fear-laden society that it eats itself. And, and, and then he's able to come in as the one who stands as the only unconquered one, or at least so he thinks so. And, but yet she's not talking about Scarecrow here. She's talking about Trump. Yeah. And so then I get to the last page on 170. In the third line down, Scarecrow in turn, 
is the embodied manifestation of our political fears. Mm. He represents our unresolved sociological problems, including, but likely not limited to, poverty, mental health, addiction, medical care, child abuse, bullying, religious intolerance, mass intolerance, mass violence, and unequal opportunity. And, and again, there's such an analogy to what Trump is here. Trump represents so much of the worst side of us. He is our president and we need to respect him and we need to honor the authority that he has. But at the same time, the things that he exhibits most often in public and political discourse are, are, are things that we have not seen exhibited, at least publicly, by presidents before. And it is this new manifestation of things. And then the final part, it's almost the last few sentences of this. And this is where I wrote Trump equals scarecrow. And then, and then you got to critique me here. More than this, though, Gotham City is the United States. And scarecrow is a phobia entrepreneur who works to fix meanings in ways that resonate economically or politically with his own concerns. And again, I think there's been such a pairing of scarecrow analysis and Trump analysis that Knopf seems to be saying that Batman isn't really the parallel to scarecrow that it seems like she's making, but yet Trump is, or at Mm. least the culture that Trump has created is something that is very similar to what scarecrow wants. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I mean, she traces these different eras and decades and how things that had been going on, like the drug culture and things like that popped up in the comic. And it was like larger groups or an epidemic of some sort. Mm -hmm. But now it, yeah, it seems like it's all housed in one person. Right. Which is interesting. And I mean, I I felt like I, I mean, the quote that, first of all, I did want to say knowledge is a thing that helps us fight fear. I do want to talk about that. I think, Mm. but the, the last quote she ends with, I mean, she did a great job of like, there's a hook right there, but she ends with it. Just yeah. um, when the scarecrow asks, what is my dis- delicious fear gas shown you? We might answer ourselves because I think that is something that in, in these current times where we're getting a better look at who we are because of how we're engaging in some of this stuff and reacting to things. But yeah, I feel like politics now when you vote, you're like voting for almost like who will protect me from these scary things that are happening to us. Right, right. And it's, I mean, every president builds a culture of fear. It's just a question of what it is that they're asking us to fear. And it's a question of degree. And so Trump is not doing anything new or the political discourse now isn't doing anything new. It's just, it's at quite a different degree. I heard someone say, and I don't fully agree with this. Somebody said that Trump is the president that America deserves. And, and that, that's, that we could talk about, but I, I almost might rephrase it and say, Trump is the president that reveals things about America. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that to me is a parallel to that last quote. What is my delicious fear gas shown you ourselves? I mean, what, is it, what does it show about us that we could have someone like Trump for all the good and all the bad that he is, and he's quite a mix of both, what, what does that reveal about us as a country? And it, and it, shows, us, it shows us a lot, and there, mm-hmm. there's a mirror. Absolutely, yeah. And and I feel like that quote that came from Batman number 189, where Batman says knowledge is a thing that helps us fight fear, like, I fully agree with that. You know, you can't just take, and we'll get into fake news, right? You can't just take what people are telling you as like, oh, this is true. You have to, which which is, I think, what pedagogy and teachers like you help us gra- grapple with, or like presenting all of these things and helping you think through that and, and better understand. Because if not... 
that's when fear, I think, gets out of control, and then we land in just bad situations. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's good that I mean, knowledge is power, obviously, but it's mm-hmm. not ultimate power. Right. And again, knowledge is not going to take away fear completely. Mm-hmm. And Plato wouldn't even want that. Like yeah. there is a degree that that is that fear is productive. It's not only a destructive emotion. Yeah. And I think about Beauty and the Beast because that one song is. I guess it's Kill the Beast, and you've mm-hmm. got all the, I don't know when the last time was you saw this film, because uh, you do have children under six, but uh, when they're, they've got their pitchforks and everything, and one of the lines is, we fear what we don't know, or we yeah. fear what we don't know. I think it's, we fear what we don't know, and that's absolutely, you know, if you're not seeking out and, and understanding, I think that's potentially what Scarecrow, I think, capitalizes on, and then Scarecrow as Trump as yeah. well. Yeah, and what is it? that maybe that maybe the author might say, what is it that we know the least? Maybe that is ourselves. Yeah. I don't know if I want to play this game, but I, I guess, you know, we're coming up on an election year, whether we have four more years of Trump or not. I mean, once he is out of office, do you feel like we'll still be in this zone of fear or do you think things will start to de-escalate? It depends on, on things that happen. I, I read one commentator who said that, Trump has that this person said that he didn't necessarily fear Trump as much as the next Trump, because what Trump has done so sloppily and in such a bumbling way, now it's that much easier for someone to come along later and to do it really well mm-hmm. and to do it so expertly. I mean, and, and, and I don't know if this is fully a, an analogy, but to me, Scarecrow seems just like a mess every time he comes in and, and the things that he does. And to me, the Joker is like the epitome of like calculation and these giant things that he's able to achieve that are, that are really, really rough. And so I'm not sure if I fear the Scarecrow as much as, oh my goodness, what if kind of the Joker version of that, like the, yeah. the, real, the real plan can come in. So, and I don't think that has to necessarily be just the president. You know, I don't think the president controls everything about the country, but, you know, can we, regardless of who's in office, move our conversation in the public square largely towards towards two things. These are the two things that I think, not just Trump, but I, I, I do I do put a lot of the blame on him for this. These are the two things that are most lacking and the two things that I think will address your question of can we move beyond this? Can we have nuance and can we have empathy? Right now, there is not room for nuance, uh, l- largely, largely on both sides of the spectrum. But because Trump's in office, that his, his side is certainly the loudest. There's, there's not room for nuance. There's not room to, to get into the details of something and to really have uh, a calm and an intellectual discussion on the details of things. And then there's not empathy. We're not listening to each other. We're not listening to voices of others. We're, we're certainly not listening, at least at least as a society as a whole, to the voices of the outcasts. Though interestingly, that's, I think, happening more and more and more in recent times. So regardless of who's in office, if we as a citizenry can pursue nuance and if we can pursue empathy, regardless of who's there, we're going to be able to do some different things. Certain mm-hmm. people can lead that better than others, but, but those are the two things that will seem to move us into this post 2016 election political discourse where we've just kind of been in this endless circle for four years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, people on this show should know that empathy is one of my favorite words. Okay, good. (laughs) Good, uh, good. Man, yeah, what an interesting, uh, what an interesting guy. I don't think I ever looked at him 
as before I had read this essay. So I really appreciate not hearing what you yeah, have to say. Yeah, there's, there's a depth there. I had no idea. Yeah. Any other thoughts or things you wanted to do on this one? No, no. Okay. Just like with you, this one, this one was unexpected for me. And, yeah, for sure. And how, and how good this was and how much there was with Scarecrow. What's odd is we're bookending our break with Trump. It's like Trump break, Trump, and then we end with feminism, which is great. Yeah, which which is 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 great and fitting. It's probably the best way to end. Yeah, uh, we're gonna take a break, but when we come back, we will continue our discussion with two more essays. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring "Feels Like Summer" by Childish Gambino. Thank you. 
hello, welcome back. Remember, we are talking politics in Gotham. And before we get back into it, because boy, we sure are going to, uh, we this is the what are you wearing segment, which really only makes sense for the people who are watching the video. But Sam, what are you wearing? Well, are we just doing like waist up? How do you tell Whatever is applicable to this show. Okay. Well, I'm I'm in my I'm in my Zoom shorts here because <laughs> they're comfy, and my mm-hmm. my three year old goes, "Dad, your shirt matches your shorts." I said, "Yes, son. They're both they're both black." Um, oh man! Wearing my Batman shirt of my favorite superhero, and also I think other than my Counting Crows shirt that no longer fits me, oh. my only article of pop culture clothing. Awesome. Yeah. So what's I guess. I should feel bad about it, but I don't really, is that with these now, I've just been asking guests, hey, can you wear something that is pop culture related? The other thing is I'm like, please don't swear. So I guess I curtail or censor them, but Mm. it's all worked out so far. And I've got my Batman Beyond hat that I've decided to wear. And then this shirt. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. So you got Harley Quinn, Batgirl. And Poison Ivy from the uh, Batman animated series shirt. Shout out to Josh Bertoni who got this as a gift for me. So yeah. went with Batgirl. And then if you look at my background, my pop oh. figs got three Batgirl pop figs there. Oh wow, this is a well arranged little yeah. little view here. This now is... Poison Ivy is your favorite villain, is that right? She is actually my favorite villain. There's that one. Okay. The Burnside version. Okay. And then the. Uh, Yvonne Craig version. Okay. So there you go. So yeah, I try to switch up the uh, the backdrop every episode. That's good. Keeping it keeping it fresh. Hi. Well, friends, uh, what's funny is we're already at the two hour mark. We did chat beforehand, but I just find it amusing that yeah, we certainly would not have met your benchmark of twelve p.m. Yes, I am glad I changed my standard. <laughs> Ah, the prima donna. Okay. Again, at the end of these, uh, we'll give overall thoughts, or at least I will, my overall thoughts on this collection since uh, it is a review copy. I'll I'll let you know if it's worthwhile or not. So, Fake News in Gotham City by Salvatore, or Salvatore, I don't know, James Russo. So, Sam, this was one, I mean, we both knew because of Carolyn that we were going to do Carolyn Coca, but mm-hmm. this was the one that you texted me and said, could we please do this one? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what what is the thesis on this guy? As if anyone could guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's the most succinct title and also it just it, it says exactly what it is i mean hashtag fake news in gotham city he, yeah. he could have called it the fourth estate in gotham city because oh, it's, it's all about because it's all about the media what role does the media play within gotham city is it mirror is it megaphone is it manipulator is it motor mm-hmm. what what is it that the media does and he, largely he looks at the media within gotham city the and I don't know how consistent this is in the comics, but the the GNN, the Gotham News Network, and and others within it, he looks at it as being this this thing that people gather around, like Roosevelt's fireside chats in in the '30s, and that people genuinely in in present day with GNN look to that for for truth and to be informed. And because of that, it allows the Gotham world, its villains and its superheroes to use media to do certain things. 
the writers can use it to advance plot and the mm-hmm. villains and the superheroes can use it to communicate as well as push certain agendas of things that they want to do. And so the essay looks at what is the role of the media within Gotham City, <clears throat> especially considering that Batman is a superhero that does not have an official role in the media like Spider-Man or Superman does, as, as the essay makes mm-hmm. as a point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this one, I mean, the other essay certainly turned into it, but I, I think we'll very much get out of the world of Batman to a certain extent and talk about <laughs> our current world, yeah, with our, our opinions on and our standings with the news. So the other thing w- with this is that the Gothamites believe implicitly what the news has to say, uh, even to their detriment, and, and Batman is really the one to tell them, however he tells them, of, you know, what's wrong or what's dangerous. So my first question was, uh, do Gothamites have the right idea believing implicitly in what they're watching? Should we hope for an ideal situation where we, as real actual people trust the news implicitly. What do you think about this? Or is that a dangerous idea? Mm. I think it's a dangerous idea to trust any kind of institution implicitly. So whether that's medicine or education or media or whatever that is, I mean, to put, to put complete trust in any institution, since institutions are just made up of humans, at some point there's going to be, there's going to be fault. So there's got to be some way to, to sift through things. What, what to me is, it's interesting that everyone in Gotham looks at the news as the as the thing, and, and there's a lot to say there. But it's even more interesting to me that then Batman has to be the one to come in to, to be the one to sift through it. I mean, we already talked about who is above Batman mm-hmm. kind of helping check him. Who gives him the right to be the one to come in to be able to sift the fake news from the real news? So I, I would love, I would love to look to the news and to sit around and, and, and find a Walter Cronkite and just have this be the voice of America. But we, we just don't have that. But mm-hmm. yet the, at the opposite end, I think America swung so far to the other side of that. You know, Gotham is over here at implicit trust. America is over here at extreme suspicion and news is insanely individualized. I mean, I was trying to think of what's the equivalent in 2020 America of everyone in Gotham sitting at their TV and watching it. And, and, and it's our phones, but yet we're not sitting at the phones all looking at a common source. We're looking at an individualized self-curated news source mm-hmm. or not even a news source, but something that we've used as a substitute for news source. I mean, maybe Trevor Noah, our people's main access, just like with Jon Stewart, where a lot of people's main access to the news. So, but it, it but it's self-selected. Mm-hmm. So that, that is, I think putting Gotham, and this is one instance where Gotham and the real world are at very, very different extremes from each other. <sighs> Do we have someone in our life that is like Batman? Um, you know, is it Donald J? Is it Trump that's telling us, that's sifting through? Is it social media? Do we have someone that Whoa. is that is telling us? I mean, Trump, this is all coming from Trump really telling us, you know, fake news. Right. I mean, right. is he our version of Batman in real life? <laughs> we just compared him to the joke, uh, to Scarecrow, and now we're like, hey, he's yeah. the hero we've always needed. So I, I wrote at the, on the very last page of this essay, Trump assumes this role as arbiter of truth. And he does. He absolutely does. Except he, he views himself as, or at least he presents himself as the sane one and as the one who's able to, to get rid of all the fluff and distraction, all the fake news, and to be able to, to get real. You know, one of the, 
a horrible meme I saw on Facebook, which unfortunately was at the top of my feed, which is all I see, was Trump isn't here to care about your feelings. He's here to get the job done and to tell you the truth. And, and, and that's a lot of the perspective of him. So I think Trump, yes, absolutely assumes this role as a, a media mogul who is both the product of media. Trump would not exist mm-hmm. without the media, both pre-President Trump and President Trump. Neither would exist without the media. And so he's able to, to use that. And it and it it should have backfired by now. Like it, you know, the 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 trope should be recognized, but that's that's not where we are. And the reason why it hasn't worked, I think, is something to very much dig into and to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. This was actually one of the essays that I talked with my mom about when we were on a walk. The same time she questioned your qualifications, she and I said word. she didn't know them <laughs> and question them. To be to be clear. She, because uh, she was born in 55. So, you know, she's seen obviously more than I have. And I was telling her about uh, the the data that was given uh, where they had the, I don't know what page it was on, but they had the different, uh, I guess it's 187 about people were asked, you know, how much, to what extent they trust the media and things like that. And because she's living in the now, I said, was it like that when you were growing up? And she said, no, I can't really say that. And I asked, you know, what news places do you trust most? And she said like PBS, PBS, I totally <laughs> trust. And then uh, she said, she used the word legitimate because I pressed her and I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And then NPR is another, uh, another place that, that she trusts or any national news like CBS or something that's balanced. And I said, well, that's, isn't that Fox News, this whole thing of fair and balanced. So that's really interesting. Whereas if I talk to other people, just, you know, if the, if media comes up, they always say, like, I, I can only watch like 10 minutes of Fox News. And then I watch 10 minutes of CNN. It's like this piecemeal mm-hmm. stuff. So it's just really interesting to see our world. You're right. How at, at opposite extremes of what Gotham is like for these people versus us. And like, we can't really tell what's true and not true. And we have to sift through all the different media and stuff. It's right. yeah. Whew. They've got just the one option. <sighs> Yeah. Uh, of, the Gotham, <laughs> yeah. of the Gotham News Network, like like yeah. that's that's it for them, and that that it seems like that's all they need. Mm-hmm. Do you think we would be as aware of fake news if Donald Trump hadn't come along? Do you mean do you mean the term? Do you mean the concept or like the reality of fake news? What? How are you let's taking say, that? Let's go with concept and reality, because it seems like from those numbers that people are always somewhat mistrustful. But now it's like really out there that he's telling people don't trust the media, and the media yeah. is like, why are you doing this to us? Basically, do you think oh, like without him, we would still be mistrustful, but it wouldn't be to this degree? Yeah. Well, I think that I think Donald Trump has brought up mistrust in two extremes. In one, he has he has created not created he has fostered a mistrust in news organizations by labeling certain things fake news, which you know he misuses the term for him fake news is just bad press, and so yeah. that to him that's fake news, and so I think that that gives a lot of fodder for all of his followers and those that voted for him then to be able to come along and say oh well we're not going to trust the media and we're not going we're going to say that they're pursuing a liberal agenda and all of that. So I think Trump has perpetuated that that mistrust in the media over there. But then at the same time, because Trump is, is the most documented lying president in the history of our country. And, and that's the, every day it racks up more and more. And you, we can, we can fact check until the end of time. And it's astonishing that the, the things that he'll say because of that, then the left over here goes, Oh my goodness, I can't trust Trump as media. 
representative because the things that he's saying, I, I cannot believe. So at both ends of the spectrum, Trump, Trump is at the center and he's created this mistrust of his own people of news because Trump says, oh, it's fake news. But then over here, the, you've got the media showing Trump and the things that he speaks, the left says that they can't trust because Trump himself has shown himself as untrustworthy on multiple occasions. So like that's, that hasn't happened before, like at least to this degree. You know, I don't believe that there's any, any kind of new crisis that's, in, in, nothing new happens. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. We, we've heard the phrase, but yet there are things that are new by degree. Mm-hmm. And Trump is certainly a new degree of this. And the hashtag fake news movement shows that. But I think it has a, an opposing effect on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, man. My final question, because then I think you you should take over on this one because you really wanted it. Throughout this essay, he, I was about to say she, but that was wishful thinking. He talks about, kind of goes through different uh, establishments that people could trust in Gotham, but they do not. And so I just wondered, are they so trusting in media because they have no other ideologies that they can rely on, like religion, um, social organizations, because I think he brings up bowling or something like, you know, some sort of club, a social club, things like that, because they can't trust in those. Is that like, well, yeah, this is the thing we're going to latch on to and trust in. So on 185, he lists some of those other institutions, religious institutions, which you named, higher education, and political leaders. It's the start of the first full paragraph. Yep. And then you're right. It names, it names other things and other, other groups or, or clubs. What does it say? Uh, labor unions, fraternal orders, rugby teams, Freemasons, <laughs> amateur sports clubs uh, that all build social cohesion. Like those, those aren't there. <laughs> Or if they're there, they're not playing a role. And I think part of that is just keeping this comic world of Gotham simple. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't, we, we, we're, we're not Tolkien here. And so we're not going to, we, or, or maybe we could be, but it seems like it, it, it helps keep it more manageable to not delve into those institutions as much. And then he talks about that, that sometimes the media, the author talks about this, that the media is just used as a way to advance the plot. And that sometimes that media, media as motor, I think it's in, in that section where, where the media is just there to help further something that's got to happen in, in the story. And, and a convenient, here it is, 188 at the top. News media remains a convenient means of exposition or vehicle for moving the story forward. All right, so, so yeah, part of it is there needs to be an institution that moves the story forward. And if we're going to pick one of them in a world where we've got a guy that dresses up as a bat, like what better one to really engage that than, than the media? Yeah. What's what strikes me as so interesting is that this media is so that that the people of Gotham respond the way that they do to the media. Like it doesn't surprise me that's the institution that's kind of focused on, but it surprises me of Gotham's reaction to that because it's so different than what we live in now. Mm-hmm. We we so KNW and choose our own news sources now that that's that's it's hard for me to imagine anyone sitting around any device, radio, television, or phone, and communally engaging a source that they look to as authoritative. I mean, I say that, and I and I go to church, and and that's exactly what we do. Sure. But yet, outside of religion, most people are not doing that. Mm-hmm. And that seems atypical. And as soon as people do that, even within a religion, people are like, oh, that's, that's kind of cultish and it's, and it's stigmatized, mm-hmm. that, kind of, that kind of mass thought together. But I feel like even with religion, well, we trust and 
I guess I'll say trust. I was like, should it also be have faith in our church leadership? I think we're also called to think through the sermon. Like, I'm sure you would agree that there are times you may not have fully agreed with a certain interpretation of, of the Bible. So even there, I think there's a, a bit of a, a difference, too, with yeah. religion in the real world versus the media in Gotham and, and right. how much people just like, yeah, yeah, that must be right, because it's right there on my boob tube. Right. It's just <laughs> it's such an extreme version. Yeah, the critical thinking just isn't there. And yeah. Batman has to come in, it seems, and, and do it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have a friend named Michael Bailey, who's a big Superman aficionado. So you want to get along with him, but he says he, he mentions like the talking heads of exposition or or things like that. And it very much comes into play. I I think you read Frank Miller's the dark Knight rises or dark Knight returns. That's not. Yeah. Where Mm -hmm. they have always that media pops up and Lana Lang and having the discussions and everything. So I always think about that, but yeah, you go with what you're about to say. We're, so in your question, were you asking, is there a commentary on certain institutions by the fact that media is the one that they focus on and that others are not looked at as trustworthy? I think partially that as well as because they don't really believe in or hold on to or are a member of anything, inevitably does something have to fill the void? And so it just happens to me be media. Like if these people were more religiously minded would then they be able to sift more critically through what the the media has to say in their world? I hope so. Or even, you know, social organizations or you said political leaders. I hope the prominent of multiple institutions in a society leads to more critical thinking. And it definitely seems like the the, the mono institution of media within Gotham really really dumbs down the, the group think that that is there. And so they, they need to diversify the importance of, of their institutions. But also, I mean, the people of Gotham largely are members of Gotham. And, that, and that's kind of it. You know, you're not a member of, of, of a club, a religion, a group, a party mm-hmm. even. Like you are a member of this city. And what institution out there could unite a city as much as the media? You know, it couldn't be religion because not everybody believes it. It couldn't be higher education because not everybody goes to school. It would be, it's the media. It's something that everybody from kid to person who is an old shut-in, are they able to engage the media because they can sit in front of the TV. And so it's this ubiquitously accessible institution. So it's brilliant as a choice if we're going to pick one within the Gotham world to to do all these things of, of manipulator and motor and mirror that the essay talks about, like the, the media is best able to do that. Mm-hmm. Again, it just fascinates me that Gotham's reaction is just like complete supplication. <laughs> to it, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And was it also this essay that mentions how all the politicians, like they don't last very long or was that another one? Oh, it's like no, mayors aren't really named and no. they die quickly yeah. and all of that. In the, so, yeah. In the Batman movies, was it in, was it in like original Tim Burton Batman? It was... Like is I think it like named the mayor and then later on it just was it yeah. was unnamed like yeah. it, it gets increasingly nebulous these mm-hmm. figures I mean the political figure that we see I, I think having the most influence is Harvey Dent and look what happens to him right yeah again politics is not this institution that's any or that's a big authority mm-hmm. within this Gotham world it's it's the media but the me it's just so interesting though that the media is can kind of be whatever you want. I mean, religion as an institution is largely looked at as conservative. At higher education or academia is largely looked at as pretty liberal. But yet media 
is this tabula rasa that you can paint whatever you want on. And, and, and the author makes that point that it is a plot device, but it's also the one that's most fitting to be able to do all of these other, these other things. It's the most manipulable. Yeah. If that's, if that's a word. I guess it's just, I mean, it's just facts without any sort of commentary on it. So like has no political alignment at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or there is the commentary because, you know, they certainly give, I guess the media gives their thoughts on Batman and all the things that are going on, but it's, it's in, it is, I think you're really wise to point out. It's like this apolitical zone, right? I mean, like mm. political parties seem to play no role within Gotham. All that's there are like superheroes and villains and the people of Gotham. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's it. And that's what we need for the stories as they play out. But it, that doesn't represent, there's not such a herd mentality with media within the United States, at least not anymore. And maybe there never really was with Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow and, and all the others. Maybe not. So I want to ask you, on Please. 183, it, on the second full paragraph, it talks about the Gotham Cathedral. Mm. Um, I would love to hear about that. Like, what, what role... <laughs> Does the Gotham Cathedral play? And it mentions two things I remember. One was in in Tim Burton's Batman. You know, it's the scene of the epic fight, and Kim Basinger is there and doing her her piercing scream, and Joker <laughs> are are fighting there, and it's, yeah. it's 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 this big fight. It's interesting to me that in the Dark Knight, that Batman and Joker have their epic fight together, not at a cathedral, but at a at an office building. Yeah. So that's, that's almost a, a replacement of the cathedral. And then it mentions in, in one of the other comics that the Gothic cathedral becomes like a, a hideout for, for criminals and their materials. So what, what role does Gotham Cathedral play other than it used to be something and now it's not? And I like how it says in Tim Burton's Batman, it, it, it's left to serve as atmospheric ruin porn. <laughs> I liked that phrase there. Phrase. Oh, man. It's been, so it's been a while since I've read something that I could like concretely talk about because there's like Batman the cult. So there are some like religious mm-hmm. things. Uh, the last time I remember something taking place in a church was during No Man's Land where there are they're basically helping usher people from outside. So it's like a safe haven, but that ends up going awry. Like there's a bad priest in there. If I remember correctly, it's been a a year or two since I've read it. So you've got religious members, you kind of have the good one. And then like, of course you have the bad one. And it seems like it's serving the purpose of bringing the community in and and protecting them. But then there, it does have a, a dark that must have been where they may have been storing the weapons and then uh, Penguin mm-hmm. was using it. I, I can't remember the details. Okay. So there it is. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, besides being a place maybe that Batman drives by, there haven't been too many stories that focus on it. Okay. Does religion, I mean, not just the cathedral, but does religion come up at any other, any other point? I mean, uh, in, is it is it the Dark Knight Rises that ends with Batman like in the underground with this new this new group of of youngins who are going to rise up and follow him? Oh, the mutants! Or is that the Dark Knight Returns? Which, right? Are you talking about the yes? Yeah, 
the mutants turn into dark, the dark knight uh, returns right I don't remember what they are yeah he gets, the, he gets them on their side mm-hmm. i mean that that to a degree like like there's a religious element to that because there's such an allegiance that they have to him but it's not explicitly religious yeah there is a character named huntress and catholicism is a big part of her life and she wears a cross and everything but one of those characters that she's not dealt with as well, you know, compared to like Daredevil where Catholicism really is woven and uh, with his past. Not, I, I feel like it's a character by character basis and any religious stories, I think were more like a negative, like the cult or um, it's like Father Black something. These people are going to be, they're going to be, they're bat splainers out there and they're going to be oh. yelling at me. But that's why I have a Batgirl podcast and not a Batman podcast. Yeah, so I feel like not many stories deal with it, and it's a it's a character by character basis to see what their actual belief systems are. Like Barbara Gordon, I don't really feel like she has any sort of religious belief system, as far as I have seen. Okay. Yeah. Well, on on one eighty five, he talks about how I, I mentioned this a little bit that Superman is a reporter, Spider Man yeah. is a photographer, yeah. and so they've got a certain ability to influence the news because they're they're part of the media and they're part of the story but then he says batman however has no pull with the mass media in the role of a sympathetic friend working for the press much less full-time employment at a media outlet instead when batman wishes to get better coverage he generally generally must get a little more hands-on and i love that that batman in order to engage the media he has to become the story Mm. He can't manipulate it or put the camera where he wants or write the article that he wants like Clark Kent and Spider-Man are able or Peter Parker are able to. He he himself has to become the story, which yet again goes back to why he's my favorite. Like <laughs> he's not he's not self-made in the sense like he came from nothing because he was handed a lot of things, but yet he's self-made in the sense he took those tools and he became something without the advantage of of a superpower, even without the superpower of being within the media. Mm-hmm. How would you say he as Batman compares to he as Bruce Wayne in getting that coverage and how he uses it? It seems like, well, it seems like Bruce Wayne uses that coverage <clears throat> more just as a convenient cover. You know, Bruce Wayne needs to be Bruce Wayne and presented a certain way so that Bruce Wayne is able to be Batman. And it seems like some of the ways that Batman really uses the media is, and and the essay mentions this, is as a communicator Mm -hmm. to other people, even like specifically to the Joker. So, so for Bruce Wayne, it's a cover and for, and for Batman, it is, it seems like it's more of a communicator. Mm. And then how would you, I mean, with the villains, because everyone wholeheartedly believes the media, does, does that make villains who use it even more dangerous? Would you say who you so I'm thinking of even Joker. I mean, Joker in the Dark Knight. Whoa, he thoroughly uses it to the extent that people were ready to kill the numbers cruncher because he knew who you know, because Joker said, kill him or I'll blow up a hospital. Right. And and in Tim Burton's Batman with Mm. the with the creepy commercial (laughs) that he's laced all these products with his whatever that'll kill you with a smile. Mm. So yeah, Joker effectively uses it. I mean, it's, you see, by having media as this primary institution, it's, 
and by it being as important as it is to the people of Gotham, it lends itself to be hijacked, but it also lends itself to being used well. Mm. And I don't, I'm sure there are examples of Batman not using it well, but because it's such a big deal in people's lives, it's able to be used by both the good and the bad for great good or great ill. I mean, you mentioned earlier how you get upset when people pick a verse out of the Bible and you can, and you can make it, you can have it justify anything. You can have the Bible justify anything or any view that you want, but that doesn't mean that you are faithful to the interpretation. And so I would say same thing with the media, just because you're using it and it's defending something or articulating something doesn't mean you're you're actually faithful to that institution, what it's job is, which is to inform the people, to create Mm -hmm. an informed citizenry. And I think of like the HBO show, The Newsroom, and how those people were obsessed, not with a certain political view, because because the the main character was was a Republican, and everyone around him was, was a liberal Democrat, but yet they could come together around the newsroom because they fought for the common cause of creating an informed citizenry. And, and the media within Gotham literally seems like it's doing the opposite of that. It's creating a herd mentality so that it can be left up to the devices of whoever happens to need it, whether that be Batman or Joker. Mm-hmm. So they both kind of abuse it. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Justice League, the animated series, was Wild Cards. And he uses the media to basically hypnotize all the viewers and and things like that. So now I'm starting to rethink all these uh, these instances. I did text my friend about, I said, quick, when is Gotham Cathedral or religion used in Batman? (laughs) Uh, Well, Donovan said the cult, which I mentioned, involves Deacon Blackfire as a bad guy. So that was his name. And then Batman says he's not spiritual in whatever happened to the caped crusader. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't, but spiritual and religious are, are different things. UVA did a class 10 years ago called spiritual, but not religious. Interesting. So maybe... Maybe there's still room for Batman to believe in something else. Well, justice, I suppose. Yeah, right. That's true. But it's it's justice based off of, as we said, this nebulous yeah. idea that he seems to only base off of his own notion of what it is or what Alfred is able to bully him into. Yeah. It's still not objective or rooted in a text. Yeah. I think on, uh, if I were to think externally, I feel like not many comics deal too much with religion because I think... There's just this comfort, discomfort with it, um, both for the readership as well as the writers. And it's it's always this sort of polar idea of, you know, is it satire and we make fun of it or it's like really bad? Or if we're going the good route, does it mean that we're talking down to people and trying to get them to see the way? So I think they kind of steer clear. So that's why I can kind of see Gotham not really having that center focus point because as we've seen, Demon or Deacon Blackfire and then some bad stuff happening during No Man's Land. That's not. And then Huntress, even though she's Catholic, does kill people. So she is a school teacher, too, oh, <laughs> which is funny. I don't know how she gets the days off that she does to fight, but she sure does. Maybe it's just in the summers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in some sense, it's really unfortunate that the Batman world hasn't engaged that institution of religion because as we'll see in, in the next and last essay that we'll talk about, like it's engaged so many deep and nuanced issues. I mean, even matters of ability and disability mm-hmm. and, and even that, that is hard to talk through. Yeah. And, but, but yet it's not engaged this thing or it's engaged it as making fun of it 
or kind of demonizing religion or those that yeah. follow it, which are typically the two ways that that pop culture engages religion. It's so incredibly rare that there is a nuanced engagement with within religion. It, because to your point, it's hard and it makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So do you he think does, he what? I was just going to say, do you think we'll ever trust media again? Well, did, did we, we ask this did question? We, I can't remember. <laughs> did we? Did we? Did we ever? I yeah. mean. Just because According to those people, numbers, not very much. Well, just because, well, you know, back in the day, a lot of people used to watch a lot more nightly news, but mm-hmm. I, that doesn't necessarily mean that they trusted it. And and I feel like maybe if we polled people of how much, how, do people engage news outlets more now or in 1950? It'd be way more now just because yeah. there's more options. I mean, I don't know that, but I would assume like the fact that I can engage 15 sources of news on my phone within <laughs> 60 seconds, like... Yeah. It just it seems like there would be more news engagement, but that doesn't mean that people are discriminating better. And it doesn't mean that the news is that much better. It just means that there's that much more to sift through. And it just means that we've got to invent terms to classify certain things like fake news, which interestingly, he doesn't mention until page 189, almost the last, actually, it is the last paragraph. I think that's the first time that he actually mentions it. Um, the as realistic as as newer paragraph and about six lines down, he says, even when the news being provided is fake news, such as that dished out by media man, Gothamites still go to media man for their information. (laughs) You're supposed to be able to go to your media to get the news rather than to go to other competing sources of information. So like, even when they're shown, it's not reliable. And, and again, I, I, it's not unfair to make a parallel here to Trump because like, again, he could have called this essay the fourth estate in Gotham City. He called it hashtag fake news, very much situated within our time. Like, how much untruth does someone have to speak in order for that person to be largely mistrusted? And, and, and if we're talking about our, our president, we have not yet met, met that moment, which mm-hmm. is absolutely baffling. That, that that's the case. And if that's the case, that, that Trump has uttered, you know, as the numbers show us, you know, more more lies than we thought humanly possible or, or, <laughs> things, that are, or things that are not factually verifiable, sure. let me put it that way, than, than any president we've ever had. And yet we still have, so, we still have numbers that are really consistent. That, that reveals something. That to me makes the Gothamites trust in media even when media man shows them they shouldn't have it, that makes me see more of a parallel between Gothamites and Americans than I really want to see. Mm. And I think it connects to the, the, the scarecrow situation as well. And, and that, you know, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing ourselves because this is something I think I talked with my mom about as well, that he's saying these outrageous things and, you know, lies that that can be proven as untruths, but he's saying things that, certain people want to hear and have waited for hearing. And so I think they latch onto it. And, and, and I feel like that's the reason why, even though we're baffled. <laughs> exactly. And you have, you have people prioritizing a, a desire and an affirmation and an identity over, over truth. And it's, and it's at this point, four years in, you know, it's, it's undeniable that that's what's happening. And that's, that's really scary. So then you have to figure out how do you engage a people and how do you engage in a dialogue in the public square where the rules are not truth? You know, the founding fathers would freak out at this world where truth is just an ancillary priority to things right now. Do you think Gotham would look different if there were several media outlets or people did challenge what they were thinking or viewing, I guess? 
I think so. I think that Go- I think that Gotham wouldn't be thought of as this like you this ubiquitous thing, and Gothamites as this like collective group of sheep as much if there were multiple outlets and more critical thinking. I mean, because if, if, as soon as we talk about Americans as a group, I mean, we, we, we can say certain things are true, but so far as how they approach the media, we can't say that there's an American view of media because there's so many different approaches to it. But in Gotham, it's, it's one thing. There's one view and that view is to trust it. Mm. He says at the bottom of 189, after he says fake news, almost at the bottom of the page, he says, we can even tailor our media consumption habits in accordance with which ideological filter we want used to spin the day's events or which version of reality we want presented to us, which is such a, it's a great, almost poetic description of, of what I was saying earlier of our phones are the self-selected source where we can choose what it is to to feed whatever bias or view that we have what's scary though is that we we often at least i hope it's done unknowingly like it really scare me you know if we're doing this and we're aware that i'm just feeding this view because it's something that i want but i think that a lot of that's done unknowingly what's shocking to me though is and again trumps the example when the curtain is pulled back and we see things as they really are and we see truth as being not a priority and yet still there's a fervor in a following. Mm-hmm. That's when that's when I get very that's when I get very scared and wonder what will happen with the with the next election. Yeah, I think of I mean, hopefully this is a connection, and it's not. A, you can tell me if I'm like way off, but I had a discussion recently uh, with Donovan just about celebrity and celebrity status and how we latch on to certain people. And he asked me, "Have you ever been let down by a celebrity?" Because it's mm-hmm. true that sometimes they like, you know, I think about Kanye that he has such a following and he does kind of crazy stuff that I don't really understand. And and I say, no, I've never been let down by anyone because I don't like wholehearted latch on to them and whatever they say is like gospel and everything because I can kind of pick and choose what I feel like but I feel like Trump has that sort of celebrity status of Mm -hmm. this guy whatever he does yeah I'm I'm all on board for and some people uh, I think are able to sort of swim I which I don't understand but they're able to swim and be like I don't I disagree with some things but I'm still going to vote for him but then there are others that are the the scary like whatever he says that's got to be the gospel truth for sure right and and those those scare me more than more than any others because those are very much like the Gothamites of it just it, it shows that it takes more than just presenting hard facts for for people often to change their mind or, or, or for people's hearts to be turned. I can't just give a history. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can teach what the lost cause narrative is to my students as much as, as, much as I want <laughs> and, and show them like, oh my goodness, like this, this was, narrative was constructed for you as a Southerner to believe. And yet still the kids are going to come out and some of them are still going to hold to that. So it's not just hard facts. And that's not, so it's not like the media, if they just started spouting all that was true, that that's going to be, that's just going to magically do it. You know, there, there's more to it that needs to go, that needs to happen there. So the end of the essay, it, it, it ends on quite a high note. He ends and says there towards the top, uh, the news in Gotham City and the news is sometimes fake news being used to manipulate the citizenry. Fortunately, the somewhat gormless or slow-witted, because I had to look that up to make sure what that meant. <laughs> Gothamites. The, the, the alliteration is great, but I needed to know what it meant. 
they have Batman to correctly decide for them what is and is not fake news, and then to stop the flow of fake news. In today's climate of mistrust of the mass media, perhaps it is the function of Batman we most desire, and this is, it, it is this function of Batman we most desire in the real world. I said earlier that the media created Trump, and, and they did. And the media, even though media shows all the crazy things that he says and does, just it, it still maintains Trump. But Trump has assumed this role, as I said earlier, of the arbiter of truth. And, and he has assumed this posture of, I'm the one who's going to tell you the way it really is. And I'm the one who's going to be able to sift through all the fake news and all of the cultural Marxism that's coming in and trying to destroy me. And I'm going to be able to, to shoot straight with you. And I think because Trump takes that kind of posture, it baptizes anything after that point that he says. I think people so want someone to come in and to be their God and to be their savior, to show them the way the world that it really is that they're willing to set aside some other things like truth in order to gain this bonus of having someone help them navigate the world. Mm -hmm. And so Trump has moved himself into that position. I mean, Trump, Trump does what Jefferson did to the Bible. You know, Jefferson historically chopped it up and took out the parts that he didn't yeah. want. To. And, and we see Trump doing that with the world and then representing it in this way. But I think what appeals to people, is, at least I hope, it's not actually the things that Trump does. And it's not actually the things that he pursues because so many of those things are, are wretched. It's the attitude or the posture that he takes. This, this identity that he's created, this assertiveness that he has, people want that. I mean, we can say whatever we want to about Obama, but so much of what characterized his public persona was an empathy and a humility. And that doesn't mean he always used it well, but that's, that's, that was part of his character and his public engagement. And, and that's largely absent with Trump. And so I really do think people so deep down want a savior and want someone to function as their God. And Trump gladly assumes that role as leader. And, and what he leads them to is, we, we, we can talk about that later, but he's leading. At least he's taken us in a direction. So you heard it here first, folks. Batman is Donald Trump. No. <laughs> no. Trump is Trump Batman. Is scarecrow. Let's do, let's, let's do all that aye, aye, aye. I there There is an overlap with what the essay seems to be saying of Batman does assume that role as the one who's able to help guide people through. But the difference between Batman as media guide and truth God and Trump as media God and truth God is that Batman has predictable and consistent principles that he operates on. Trump does not. Again, mm -hmm. I think Trump's big desire is that he does not want to be dominated and therefore wants to dominate. That can manifest itself in tons of ways. So Batman as kind of media messiah, he at least is predictable in what it is that he's going to do. Yeah. I haven't, I've fallen off of modern day Batman, uh, so I can't really speak to this, but I, I wonder how, if at all, social media has been mm. brought into, because these examples really are more TV, I would say, TV and newspaper, yeah. um, but social media has such a, a strong sway, and, and I think that has pushed things more quickly than they would have on their own trajectory, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure how. Uh, yeah, I wonder if people are, are pulling out their phones and, and texting. You know, I love how shows like Sherlock or, or House of Cards incorporate, you know, on-screen texts as yep. part of what drives the plot. And, yeah. 
And yeah, I wonder if modern Batman does that. But then again, my, my guess is it doesn't because Gotham is almost like this, this city that's trapped in this time warp where everything is kind of like, in some sense, like pseudo 1980s ish, where like your TV is your primary hook to the world. And that to update it too much would lose some of what makes historical Gotham, historical Gotham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I know Barbara Gordon did uh, in the, the Burnside run, which I don't think I could give you years on that one, but she used social media more than that. And it was more of like a character defining thing because they were trying to make her a bit more youthful. Mm. So, you know, she took selfies and, and things oh. like that and talked about her her uh, city, but she was outside of Gotham at that time. She was in this sort of niche, indie kind of yuppie area or township, I guess, called Burnside. So it kind of matched with her, her okay. character at that point in time. Okay. Whew. Anything else on uh, this one that you really wanted? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad we did it. I mean, I, like you said before, the essay before really, really was a segue into this. Yeah. I, I think both, both of those essays, the last two are not so veiled commentaries on, on Trump and modern political discourse. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's important. Yeah. And, and I would say, yeah. So, I mean, if people haven't hung up, stopped, you know, whatever you're going to do with any of this stuff, you know, thinking that these are all liberal agenda essays, I would say that they are not. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them really pushing it. I mean, they really are just treating facts like this is how things are happening right now. And that, so you've got these current event ones, and then you also have ones that are, are dead white philosophers, as Carolyn <laughs> said, too. So in case you are worried about picking this book up because you feel like it's pushing some liberal agenda, I would say that it is not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so I guess we're moving on to the yeah. final one. Grand um, Friend of the podcast, friend of mine, uh, Carolyn Coca. She has written Backrolls and the Politics of Feminism in Gotham. So would you like to, as a mansplaining mansplainer, there's my third and final insult. Would you like to summarize this thesis? I was waiting for it. Well, then, then let me not mansplain. Let me just quote. I think she gives her best thesis at the end. So page 210, the last paragraph, and it spills over to 211. She says, Each Batgirl has been a product of the successes and limits of the feminist movements at the time of her creation. The intent of writers and artists and editors at a profit-oriented company, mindful of both feminist ideas and backlash to them, and varying receptions and sometimes pushback by the readers. So, in a sense, Batgirl is presenting this essay as... I mean, the, the, the shaping show thing is totally here. Batgirl at times has shown and reflected the feminist movement and culture. And at times, Batgirl has been meant to shape it. Mm-hmm. And it largely depends on the editor's whims. And I want to talk about that because so much happens at the desire of the editors that it, it goes back and forth between is Batgirl showing us who we are in our culture or is Batgirl at, at the, acting as a vanguard and helping shape it? And this essay chronicles that over Uh, first, second, and third wave feminism. So without, I will say you texted me, what did you have to say about this particular essay that I did not prompt you to say at all? I said that this was, it was the deepest, the, the most fleshed out, and also had the best subtitles, I think, within of, of all of the others. I also feel like this was the one that was the least stretching of, I want to bring our world 
with into the Batman universe. And I want to see what's going on. This one seemed, this one, this was such a believable chronicle of that shaping show dynamic. And, and I'm now I'm at a loss to think of any other character in the Batman universe that shows this as well as Batgirl. Yeah. I'm sorry that she didn't. I'm pretty sure that the essay that she sent me to like look over and things and read for the first time had images. So I was bummed that they took the images out and they just had Nolan images and throughout. But anyways, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so let's go off of what you had just said, not the um, the the praise, though. I always say hashtag Carolyn knows because she certainly does. You know, to what extent do you think comics, graphic novels, uh, even literature should react to current trends? And to what extent should they push ideas forward? Perhaps we've covered this, but now that we're, I feel like this really talks about it, that's a reaction to some stuff that's happening. It's trying to push stuff forward as well. I mean, what's the balance there? Mm. I think the best art does both, but it doesn't have to be balanced. And I think that any piece of art, I hope, is is wanting to to push and to challenge or to shape in a certain way. You know, there's there's some authorial intent behind it, but there's also uh, there's also an openness of what that could be. It, it, the artist might want you to be shaped, but not maybe in a specific way. But there's still a desire for for something to happen. And then there's also this desire of it wanting to show and reflect something like there's a statement that's, that's there. So I I think that art does it best when it's both, but depending on what that piece of art is, those proportions might change. And the, the fascinating thing about Batgirl is that you can go throughout all of the, all of this time that it covers from 1961 through present day. And you see that ebbing and flowing. Sometimes it's pushing the envelope and sometimes it's just reflecting where people are and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And so Batgirl is this character that's often used, unfortunately, it's sometimes like as a repository of what at that moment the editors felt they needed to do, whether that be to fulfill a certain agenda, whether that be to cater to certain individuals' desires, whatever it is. But it seems like Batgirl was just this I said the phrase earlier, but it was almost this tabula rasa so that whatever needed to be painted on her could be painted on her. Mm-hmm. But yet, and, and the time that it seems like that happened the least was when she becomes the Oracle. I mean, like, how much does that just blow apart expectations to have a woman with a disability in that position of intelligence and power and her maternal nature? Because the, the essay, Carolyn talks, or maybe Miss Coco, because I don't know her. <laughs> But when the professor, when, the professor, when she you know she talks about breaking that stereotype of those that have a disability not being able to care for others, and yet mm-hmm. you see Oracle owning it and doing it. So I, the the Oracle manifestation of Batgirl seems as the one that just like did like the thing that I was most excited about, and then the editors take it away, which helped me understand that Stella because that <laughs> I didn't know about that until here because they rewrite it and yeah. and they're. We're, we're done with the, and I'm quoting her at this point, we're done with the super crip and now we're moving, we're, we're rolling things back. Yeah. And that, that was upsetting. I don't know if I can make you understand it, but it's interesting because her, her subtitle on that one was 
back row the oracle from back row the oracle and it's really like well from back row the oracle back to back row again yep. yes. uh, which there was certainly a, a fan outcry uh over that as well because you're losing this staple and also one of the few disabled characters that people could relate to yeah it's been a while since i guess it was 2011 or 2012 uh since all of that stuff happened with the new 52 where basically they washed everything all continuity clean and and started fresh and everything so I think they wanted to, number one, have the, I think, most recognizable Batgirl as Barbara Gordon because up, up to that point you had Stephanie Brown. And I guess they just wanted her as Batgirl. They kind of wanted everything really easy. And I think at that time Batman had like this idealized five-year timeline. And so it just wouldn't have made sense for her to go through all of her history in that little bubble. So they felt like she's got to be Batgirl. Later on, it's written in that, yes, Joker was a part of it. And she's got some sort of chip that without it, she wouldn't be able to walk. So you're like kind of giving it back in there. But I personally find the chip a bit offensive just because it's like, does that technology actually exist? What does that say about, you know, you can't just have her be disabled. You like, yeah, kind of you're giving it, but yeah. Uh, And it shorts out a lot, which is kind of annoying in in recent years. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it was unfortunate. I think to a certain extent, it was just like simplification. Like, let's just keep it simple. And Batgirl is Barbara Gordon and she can walk and, and everything is good again. Which is so sad because one of the most, it seems, nuanced pieces of the Batman universe was that that, that happened to her and that she became Oracle. Like, that's that's such a unique part of her story. And the chip, though, that's such a... <laughs> That's such a plot device to get <laughs> something that they that they see as inconvenient. That's so uh, nice. Yeah. It's funny because someone, uh, it recently came up again, unfortunately, it shorted out recently. And someone had tagged me in something on Facebook. Oh, because I said about my rage quit on this issue. And then someone said, oh, about the magical chip thing. And then someone below said, what magical chip? And I was like, boy, are you out of touch not knowing what the magical chip is. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, even with or or before Kim Yale and John Ostrander came along, who who really created and crafted that Oracle character, Barbara was just going to be like disheveled in a garbage heap of editorial trash. People didn't really respect her. I think the quote from Len Wayne, which I guess he was editor at the time, you know, with the killing joke when he was asked, you know, could I do this to uh, Barbara Gordon? I think the quote is, yeah, cripple the bitch. So, I mean, she was like, not well. I mean, what? And then he was fridged. Yeah. So, and then Kim Yale and Mm. Ostrander came along and yeah, made her, in my opinion, and I know it's biased, one of the most important comic characters, not only because of what she represents, but she's got her hands and her fingers across the DC universe and is helping out all sorts of people, not just in Gotham city and everything. So she just becomes this like huge, great idea. And yeah, the, the funny thing is, which I'm glad Carolyn brought up is that when people try to find out who Oracle is, they inevitably assume Oracle's got to be a guy, which is, you know, like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a great reversal, sort of like the end of Naomi Alderman's The Power. Uh, At the end of the book, remember, the the editor says, you know, maybe you would like to consider publishing this under, and and she subverts the... Yeah. Because the norm would be, you know, publish under the name of a man so that you get legitimacy, but there it's maybe you as a man would want to consider publishing this under the name of a woman. Like it just, it, it subverts that. Yeah, absolutely. But no more. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, her current run is ending at 50, uh, but they haven't really treated her well, which goes into the editorial. I mean, we can talk a bit about that. I can talk to you as much as I am able to on what their reasons are for it. But yeah, so I don't I don't know what they're going to do with the that. So as far as I know, I mean, editorial... Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. It, like these editors are spoken of like like the fates, you know, controlling everything. I mean, yeah, who, who is it that controls the fate of Batgirl? Because like our our artists and writers just hired and colorists just to fulfill the whims of the editor. Because at multiple points, it was like the editors decided. Yeah, I mean that's really how it is, and it's really come into play even more um, recently. I am saying, um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> wherever you are. Yeah, so there would be like the head honcho of DC offices. And then you have different head honchos of like the minor ones, like the bad offices, etc. Unfortunately, and it's becoming clear quite recently, that uh, Batgirl is basically, even the writer of Batgirl is at the whim of whatever the rest of the Batman universe is doing. Mm-hmm. So a writer had recently come out. Uh, she finished her run, I guess around this time last year. And she said that she mistakenly, she walked into another creator at the airport by accident and found out that there was going to be a, a bat summit and she was not invited and she was writing Batgirl at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the first, or the, it wasn't the last time that that happened. She had written storylines and was asked to change them because it wasn't, fitting in with the flow of what you know whatever batman i guess and and those storylines were doing so unfortunately yes uh there's not much agency it seems like with the writer and it probably really depends upon the writer as well because she was a woman Mm. um whereas there are some writers uh, like scott snyder that's who wrote the black mirror that you read who could probably you know really push back on certain things so unfortunately yeah if if someone tells you to do something you're gonna have to do it and that is you know with some of the characters like Batgirl who might not be like first tier or a level character I think she just has to go where the storyline fits or if something's happening in Gotham it's going to affect her and she can't uh, be outside of that bubble so when she's when Carolyn is saying about the editors I mean that's honestly yeah what's happening there so I'm I'm so thankful that Ostrander and Yale were able to do what they got done. And and I guess the editor allowed that to happen because I feel like if we were to try that now, it would not happen. Mm. So it it came at, I I think, the perfect time for Oracle to be birthed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, you didn't say this, but I feel like you hinted at this and Carolyn hints at this. So often Batgirl is in relation to what's happening with the male characters. And so, and I mean, it sounds like her very fate with the editors is is in relation to largely what's happening with the male characters and, and even her costume. Like I'm looking at 197 with Betty and what's had the costumes, colors and designs position her as a female version of Robin. Mm-hmm. Her name positions her as a young female version of Batman. She's even got a crime compact, <laughs> lipstick and wires to catch criminals. I mean, she's, she's in reference to the males. Yeah. Even within the very thing that's things that are put on her body. Yeah. And, and she and Carolyn even talks about that Batman, Batwoman, Robin and Batgirl as a family unit with, with Batman as, as the patriarchal head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, she's technically what you would consider a derivative character since you have Batman 
and she's just coming off of Batman. And I try to fight against it. I mean, literally she is, but I feel with Barbara Gordon at least, cause I mean, bat dash girl, uh, bet or Betty, uh, very much does fall in line with that. But with mm-hmm. Barbara, I like to think of her as crafting her own and carving her own place in history. And it really depends on the writers because some writers like to think that she had a crush on Batman. And so she modeled it after that. Whereas originally it wasn't like that. You know, she was trying to poke fun at her father and then it, it, um, it turned in and you read Batgirl year one. And I think she takes more ownership of her costume and, and her. Yeah. So is, is bat dash girl specifically Betty? Yes. And is Batgirl, it, does Batgirl no dash, is that all, is that all the other? <laughs> With no dash or no the dash. other ones. Yeah, I'm trying no to, dash. oh, I just looked up Bat Dash Girl and they're like, did you mean Batgirl? I want to show you what Betty looked like if I could. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me see. Um, so I also want to ask this or yep. pose this to you. So we, we were on 197 and the Bat family unit and her costume is directly in reference to Robin and She's a younger female version of Batman. Oh, wow. Literally like I Love Lucy with a cape. Okay. (laughs) So she had a compact, but Barbara originally had a purse on the side that was red. I don't know if I can find an image of that. So, I mean. Wasn't that was on the cover of of Batgirl Year One, right? I don't know that she had one on Batgirl Year One. Oh, we got to find that out. I Uh I thought I could, I thought I could see a little. Well, yeah, now now we got to know. I guess so. See, this is what, I, oh, well, I looked up red purse and it's like I'm shopping. I'm not yeah. shopping. My pastor invented a word for what we're doing right now. He, did you know this? Googling. <laughs> what act, does it mean? The act of Googling during a conversation. Oh. Now, now, I, you need to tell me what the Latin root is of that because I assume there's one but don't know. But but gugamating, he he wants it to be a word. Mm-hmm. So we need to help me get it out there in culture, please. Well, it's <laughs> to, to gugamate, to be a gugamater, <laughs> to and and gugamating. Those are some those are variations. So here's her first appearance. You can see the purse. Yeah. Okay. So now I need to look up back row year one. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Chuck Dixon did not allow that to happen. Which which I would so much rather it not be there, but now yeah. I really want to know. Because I remember the cover, it was all the pink and red, and she it was the first time I think she jumped with the wire that was not strong enough to hold her. Oh, yeah. And she no, was like, it just shows her. Um, good. Okay, yeah. good. You know, good job, Batgirl right? year one. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, she, yeah. Good. I remember she has costume difficulties in that, like her her mask was, I think, pulled down, but not like some of the stuff uh, that I could show you. Yeah, with the run in the tights and the perp oh, saying, get a load of those gowns. Which I want to talk about the tights thing, but not yet. So yeah. but my question is from 197. Uh-huh. Um, if, if Batgirl and Batwoman and even Robin are all mm. in reference to Batman, yeah. are all superheroes in reference to Superman? Oh, I mean, interesting. He, is, he is indeed a Superman, and I mean, is does uh, is Batman a derivative character of Superman? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. So you're just saying like he'd be kind of like the proto, the proto, yeah, super, not, and then they all the kind sense, of like right, not yeah. in the sense like you know they're his his bastard children. Or no, I no, I understand. Which, kind of like language where there is the mother language, and then yeah. it start to yeah to filter down Latin of the Romance language superhero world. Yeah, I don't, it's hard, ooh, I don't know. That's hard for me to uh, to say, because I, I feel like Batman and Superman are just so different. Yeah, but I mean, I guess just the idea, though, of this 
alternate person, which yeah. is a white male. So there's that consistency with, you know, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, all, almost every single one. And they, they fight crime. Mm-hmm. They do it with, they're these caped crusaders. There's some involvement with the media. Like there, there's all of these parallels, but Superman seems to have been the first. Yeah. Now the biggest difference that I've mentioned before, and again, it's why I love Batman is Batman has no superpower. Sure. In fact, his superpower is, what makes him who he is. It is this, it's a story. It's a drive. It's a, it's a use of his night privilege. As I talked about it, these things that are, that are handed to him, but, but Superman, yeah, the prototype. And again, it's, it's, if Superman is the prototype, then it makes even more sense why all these characters are so in reference to the normativity of the male. Mm. If Superman as literally a Superman is the, is the main and first, maybe there's not an answer. I just, yeah. I just think that I, I couldn't help but see those parallels as they were relating Batgirl in relation to Robin and Batman. Yeah. So and then, you I'm know, not- does that make Cassandra a derivative of Batgirl and Stephanie a derivative of, uh, or Barbara, I should say, and Stephanie? I don't know. Because yeah. it's just yeah. nice to give them their own agency rather than like, let's always compare them to this other person. I just feel sure. like, mm, you know, which, they're their own person. Which I want, but yeah. that's also hard to do when you're literally your name <laughs> comes from in relation to yeah. that, that man. Yeah. Which is another reason why, like your fave, Oracle, it's not that Oracle. Yeah. It's, it's Oracle. It's this new, it's this new person with mm-hmm. agency. And yeah. she has agency as someone with a disability, which yeah. how rare is that? So, yeah. oh, those editors. <laughs> <laughs> now you know our will. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I love how Carolyn structures it around first, second, and third wave feminism in mm-hmm. chunks the the Batgirl universe into into these chunks of years. And I appreciate that she gives it that history. And again, like I said, I think that hers is the least stretched of kind of overlaying a modern political or or cultural discourse over what we see in the Batman universe. This is the most this is the deepest and I think the least the least stretched one. Mm-hmm. I mean so she begins at Seneca Falls in in New York with declaration yeah. of sentiments and resolutions and 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 keep in mind I really wanted to make sure we mention this like Frederick Douglass was at that convention and because he saw a parallel between the rights of former slaves and with women. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if women rights are human rights, then women rights are slave rights or former slave rights as well. And so he saw an overlap that was there. And throw back to our first essay, the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions is modeled on the Declaration of Independence. All men and women are created equal. Yeah. And so it, it expressly names women, even though men, you know, was often a term that, that meant humankind. Right. Effectively, all men were created equal in practice applied to males, mm-hmm. which is why women wanted to put in the and women piece. And so I love that the story, I, I love that it starts there. It roots it in that moment of history and boom, there's this, this genesis of that girl in reference to that first wave of feminism and, and, and enter Betty. Yep. Do you want to show your book now? Oh yeah. <laughs> Don't so, forget it. <laughs> Mississippian Mystique by yeah, Betty. There it is. Oh, yeah. So this book, it, it, changed the world, or at least it changed America as a country. And so it comes out in 1963. And, and I want to read just the beginning of this. I mean, she, she, so the, the book is mentioned here. And so it's, it's on, oh, now where is it? It's with 199. 
There it is, 199 at the top. Because this is in part what kicks off, you could argue, it helps kick off second wave feminism, was this book coming out, The Feminine Mystique. I mean, the start of the chapter is the problem that has no name. And, and here's how it begins. The problem so like, dramatically and, mm-hmm. and, and poetically. The problem lay buried, unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone. As she made the beds, shopped for groceries, made match slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night because in the 60s, all you did was lay and nothing else. I added that. She was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? I mean... I'm asking that question the more that I learn about Betty. Is this all? Is this all that Batman can do? Where where Robin says, not bad for a girl. And then enter in Barbara. And, and, And indeed, thankfully, this was not all under Betty that that girl could do. We we get Barbara coming in as this new, unique thing. But I love that Carolyn is realistic and that she recognizes that a lot of what the feminist movement focused on were specifically the concerns of white women and that Barbara, while progressive in a lot of ways, was still white, middle class and non-queer. And so it, it, was, it, was, it, was, an, it was an incremental step forward of, of pushing the envelope of, of, what, of what was there. I don't know if you could do like more than that, you know, at that time period. Right. I think we have that freedom now for sure. Um, and I think Cassandra Kane that you read about in, I guess it would have been wave three, pushes that even farther. Like finally we have a, a person of color as Batgirl. And then later on we have exactly. Nissa, of course. Yeah. yeah. So we're starting, yeah, to get a bit better. Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, and I asked her this too, do you feel like we are in a fourth wave? Do you feel like there will be another wave uh, and, and what that might look like or how female comic characters in general, or maybe even a Batgirl might look in, in that wave? I think that, I mean, the, the easy answer is I don't think we'll know if we're in a wave until you know, 20, 20 plus years from now. <laughs> we were in the fourth wave then. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we can, be, we can best see it in hindsight. It, but it does seem like something different is happening here. I mean, even, uh, to me, Nyssa is the beginning of a fourth wave. I mean, to, to enter into someone who is a person of color and for her to, for her to often talk about that she criticizes Barbara and the police for ignoring her community. I mean, that's, that to me does, does not even fit super well within third wave feminism. Like that doesn't sound very 1919s and very 2010s. I mean, that, that sounds very like 2010s and, and onward. So I wonder if specifically that racial element is part of what is going to be the fourth wave to really do that justice. And I do think that, that, that people of color, that Nissa as a person of color certainly acts as a representative character, but there are such unique concerns specifically for the black community. I would love to see what would be able to be done and what we could discover and learn from a black girl who was specifically black mm-hmm. because that because those that are black have such a tragic and such a long history within the United States and at 13% are such a large portion of the population. And now in 2020, having increased agency and voice in the public square, 
I, I, we, we need to, we need a Black Panther Batgirl, and I would love to see what that could reveal about us as a nation to, to, to do the shaping show thing mm-hmm. and, and to take it down there. So I wonder if really giving a depth to the racial concerns might be that fourth wave of, of Batgirl. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't read it, but it doesn't seem like Nissa fully, fully does that, but I don't know. Yeah. I haven't read it either. So I can't speak with any authority on that. I know that there were two black, there might be more now characters. Uh, one of them was a Robin esque character uh, named Duke Thomas. And then there was um, the son of Lucius Fox was Bat Wing, I think his name was, with New 52. So they were doing that racial thing. Um, Racial thing, that sounded disrespectful. They were bringing race into the Bat family a bit more over with the male characters, but not with the female. Mm. I will say, though, I feel like they dipped their toe in the water a bit with the Lego movie, the Batman Lego film, because Mm -hmm. Rosario Dawson voiced Batgirl, and she was... It looked like she was, in fact, black. So I feel mm-hmm. like they had that potential. And and I feel like whenever they do the Batgirl live action film, why not cast a black actress? Uh, the yeah. only thing I need in, in my Batgirl is, is red hair, which you can do with any person of color. <laughs> it can happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and we've seen that happen before, like in with uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child with the play. Like the character of Hermione was cast as a black actress on stage because mm-hmm. her character within the book didn't fully necessitate her her being white, and yeah. it was it was still faithful to the character to do that. I, so I would I'd be really interested to see and, and excited if they cast a black woman as Batgirl. But I'd be even more interested I'd be even more interested if they cast her as a black woman and actually dealt with those elements yeah. of her being black. Yeah. So that it wasn't just, you know, she could have been white, it could have been black, it could have been anybody, but to really thematically mm-hmm. dig into what that means in the way that like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse did of Michael Morales, I mean, Michael Morales, of <laughs> Miles Morales, of Miles Morales being such a, such an other within his culture and a subculture and, and, and such of, of mixed race within his family. Like he they dealt with that in a way that, that did justice to some of the beauty and confusion of racial discourse. He couldn't have been white. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And so I would love to see that with yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, you yeah. do it with her an ability, mm-hmm. like and give her a disability. Like, I mean, that's pretty hard. Yeah. So let's, let's try this other thing. Yeah. And because we know that I guess Gotham has different townships, it's it's easy, I think, because you had Batgirl and Burnside, there's gotta be some other place that you could have her helping out a community. That would be great. Yeah. Oy. I do know Batwoman, uh Ro- Ruby Rose was Batwoman in the uh the DC comics or the DC WBCW, whatever it's called. And then she has quit and so they've hired a black actress but the black actress is not playing kate kane it's a completely different character so it's like they recast but not really for her so it feels like they take a step forward take a step back because black canary in the recent birds of prey film that was a black actress Mm. um so yeah i don't know so you think fourth wave mostly let's bring in race more often i i feel like and i think carolyn when i asked her she thought that we probably are in the fourth wave especially with social media like that's mm-hmm. um affecting a lot of things i wonder to what extent these 
waves can be more inclusive because now that we have different genders and not everyone is is cis necessarily like will there be more inclusion for like non non women basically non cisgendered yeah. women um, yeah but yeah, yeah so more inclusive maybe, i would say overall maybe let's let's maybe we're not the first to say but if no one said <laughs> it let's be the first to say maybe the fourth wave of feminism started with the women's march in 2016 mm. like maybe maybe that was an, an uprising and a level of inclusivity and a recognition of the necessity of intersectionality within what needs to be an, a new movement in a new wave. Yeah. Let's do it. You heard it here first folks <laughs> from Sam Heath started in 2016. So I love that. I don't love this, but Betty is always, you know, fawning over, over Rob. <laughs> yes. Once to date him, but, but, Tell me if I thought I remember this in Batgirl year one, it is Robin who is all about some Batgirl and she's yes. like, you are a kid, get away. And I love that reversal, which I know is super conscious on the part of the writers. But I, I remember that on 200 when I was looking at Barbara is older, has a high level degree, has no romantic interest in Batman or Robin. And, but Robin has a romantic interest in her. Yeah, and that was true in the 70s as well with Batman Family number 1, I'm pretty sure, where Robin like kisses well, no that's not true. Robin was smack talking, I think, and, and Barbara Gra- as Batgirl grabs him and kisses him and letters poured in. They're like, "Why would you do this? Robin is a teenager. Barbara is, you know, a congresswoman or soon to be. She's at least 25." It's ridiculous. Okay. Um, but she had no romance. It was just to shut him up basically. Mm. So you are a father. We've mentioned that you are a father of three children, one girl, two boys, right? Two girls, one boy. Two girls, girl, one boy. Girl, boy, girl. So as a father of young ladies, mm. um, how can you take this essay or even, well, I guess just take this essay or, or what we've been talking about and how do you get them to engage with different superheroes? Cause I had one discussion with your daughter. She asked me a question about spider Gwen. I know that I think they've read super DC superhero girls, right? Um, so do you talk about different, I guess, representations of, of superheroes and, and females and things like that? Or have you not gotten there and, and what will it look like once you get there? Yeah. So the, so far as superheroes, the most we've talked about with them is is Miles Morales and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Like genuinely their first intro into superheroes was watching that movie. And we watched it maybe six months ago and we watched it again a few months ago and they love it. They are they're are are too older. Our our oldest daughter is six and our son is three. And they're both they're both out. Our oldest daughter, especially, are really good movie watchers. And and Alan is like me. She's a story buff. So she'll sit and listen to a story. She'll listen to a story on a book on tape. She'll watch a show. She'll watch a movie. Like she just she loves stories. And Atticus, it, he's 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 getting there, but he's interested in, in certain ones. But both of them came into an understanding of what superheroes were by watching Spider Man into the Spider Verse. And so, which which is which is great because you see such a variety of what a superhero can be. And of course, Alan very much identified with spider Gwen. And so for her, it is, that is her, that has become her standard. Like that, that's kind of her baseline of what a superhero is. And Atticus is obsessed with Spider-Man. He has only Spider-Man underwear, (laughs) water bottle and a Spider-Man shirt. And Alan for, uh, it was for her birthday, got a, got a Spider-Man shirt and, 
and, and talks about Spider-Gwen as she did with you. So I love that we use that movie and it wasn't necessarily intentional. I mean, it was intentional that we showed that as a superhero movie because it's one of our favorite ones ever. And it's one that, that kids their age could really engage. But it's also one that allowed us to open up that conversation about superheroes also being girls or superheroes being women. And for us to say that to Alan. And there are books that we'll read with her of books that talk about like the importance of, of being brave and the importance of being strong and the importance of being assertive. A book that we read just tonight is called, it's called A Girl Like You. And it was, incur- it was saying, make your feelings known. And, and, and which our daughter has zero trouble ever doing that. And also the book was nuanced enough to say, don't, I don't know how it phrased it. You, you know, the Amy Schumer skit of I'm, the I'm sorry skit. Uh, where they make fun of the the some difficulty that women have of of apologizing often sure. of and that just being a default expression. The book, the girl like you, it's a children's book. It even said something like, "And don't apologize when you don't need to." <laughs> so it's subtle things like that that have created conversations where we're trying to kind of hone in her mind what it means to be a girl and to show her someone like Spider Gwen who who is who is capable and who is in her own universe and is not in direct reference even to Spider-Man. You know, our daughter doesn't get any of that, but it's created in her imagination a place where the first superhero she's not engaging isn't Superman, which I feel like, you know, for the golden age of comics was where, where a lot of people began. Sure. Do you feel like comics then do a better job than maybe Disney princesses to show that representation and the agency and everything? Yeah, well, princesses have gotten, they've got, come far. So it's not like we're back to Sleeping Beauty. And right, right. We've got, we've got Tiana and Jasmine to at least have some, some representation of other cultures and people of color. But uh, Disney, Disney so often to me feels like it's in response to what culture wants. What, what I'm reading here from Carolyn is in, at sometimes, at some points within the, the story and history of Batgirl, she's driving the conversation and not just in response to what culture is. And so it seems like, I mean, within the comic world, you're, you're able to do things, but unfortunately you're, a, you're able to backtrack on them as they did with Oracle, and you can more easily undo them. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. A couple times Carolyn mentions readership, readers, fans, et cetera. How much influence do you think a, a fan should have on the shape and show of an art piece? <laughs> It depends on what it is that the artist wants to do. I mean, if, if the artist is wanting to primarily shape something that the artist desires and show something that the artist desires and the fan and the readers come in and overtake that and that artist feels beholden, that doesn't seem like a fair, a fair arrangement. If it's that the fans are excited and supportive of maybe something that's, that's already going on that, and it's you know, affirming or, or helps the artist deepen that or more excitedly do it, that, that seems okay. I, I don't want fans to subvert something that's there. And after reading this essay, I really don't want the editors to subvert the things that are, the things that are going on within yeah. it that, that are good and helpful and, and broad. Yeah. So I, th- I want I want readers to have a role, but mm-hmm. I don't want them to subvert or distract from what it is that the artist might want to do. Mm-hmm. But then again, I don't want an artist to think so narrowly that the artist is only wanting to do one thing. I mean, you know, what what modern artist, what modern painter ever painted something and said, "I'm only saying this one thing." You know, they they want you to go before it and have an experience, whatever that is. 
you know, so I, some, some, some balance of those things seems to be a good place for the role of fans and the intent of the artist. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. To find fandom is so strange. It's fickle. Uh, it had such power. I feel like, you know, as a fan currently, that's really dissatisfied where Batgirl is like what I have to say, editors should actually be listening to me because I actually feel like I know better <laughs> than they do. Yeah. Um, but then there are sort of the negative backlash. And this is, you know, she talked about the positive aspect that, you know, people had problems with Steph. Um, at the end of war games and like, look what you did to her. And so they brought her back, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. then, you know, I think about us, uh, this isn't the Star Wars, but Carolyn would approve since she's a Star Wars fan. And you've seen the most recent trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. Rose Tico uh, and just that backlash uh, for the, a- the people going after the actress. And then right. to the really the creators bowed to the, the fans and then like her represent, well, she was just, brought way back her runtime in the in the third of the three so there's that negative result yeah. too so there's got to be yeah sweet spot but it's just hard to tell like when do we listen to them when do we not listen to them well i'm glad that george lucas listened to the fans about jar jar binks so that oh was- no oh He's one yeah. of my favorites oh misa no like him no no not yikes not. okay whatever oh you God. say can we um, talk about the tights incident on 200? <gasps> we can talk <laughs> about it. Let me see if I can pull up an image. You mentioned it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned it earlier. So Batman praises her. You see that girl? That was one time where you turned a feminine trait to your advantage. Barbara thinks, I just didn't have the heart to tell Batman that I tore my tights deliberately to give me an excuse for showing off my legs and distracting those crooks. That's true. This was such a layered, or maybe it's more simple, conversation that, one, this couldn't happen now. <laughs> like, that would, like the, the world would implode if that happened now. But one, it's so, it's so interesting that it was still, she is still using her sex appeal and her sexuality. She's objectifying her own body in order to be able to do something. But the wink-wink joke is not that. The wink-wink joke is, oh, at least I did it knowingly. You know, at least at least I was I was aware of of doing that, but I was still playing off of these these male expectations. Here's the cover. Okay, there it is. You can see the run in the tights. Get that. And it doesn't really. Why won't you focus? She says. Uh, well, Batman says, "Batgirl, get over here. Help us. We've got a problem." And she says, "I have a bigger one. A run in my tights." Right. So yeah. it's. It's meant to be, you know, a commentary on female expectations and all of that, but yet the commentary falls through because it doesn't recognize like what she's doing is is a little dehumanizing. <laughs> and let me show you. So that was sixty eight, maybe. Well, no. What am I thinking? Well, maybe sixty eight. And let's look at this image of. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is a good one. Of a more recent person. Yeah. So there Who does that? She does it purposefully to like distract people. Yeah. I mean so yeah. so so I, I feel like the two views of this would be one that I've kind of expressed like, oh my goodness, like this is like objectifying your own body, this yeah. is not okay, this is dehumanizing. And the other view is, well, I'm so comfortable and I'm so I'm so in charge and it's and it's my body that I'm I'm able to do this yeah. and that what, 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 you know, forget about the expectations that are there. I'm able to do this 
because I, I have agency and, and my body is mine. Yeah. And so I feel like in today's world, I could hear both of those reactions to, to that incident. Yeah. And for our listeners, I just showed him an image of Power Girl. Yeah, this was actually, this was a question that came up because I talk about it in the thesis that I wrote and I presented and someone asked, like, you said this and what do you mean about that? And I felt like I didn't explain myself well because I do think there is something positive about being like, this is my body. And also it almost is a commentary on men as well as being like really visual creatures and almost like a slave maybe to the monkey brain or the lizard brain that, Hey, yeah. ho, 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 she's got to run in her tights and I'm super distracted now. So there's that as well. Uh, but she uses what I liked about that. Cause it's, it's actually a terrible issue, but if I were to find any sort of positive out of it, it's that um, she takes what is perceived as a weakness and mm-hmm. turns it on its head and uses it as a strength. Which then praises her for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's, I mean, overall, it's it's very much a sign of, of the times in the 60s. Yeah. But I feel like with Barbara, uh, I, I she's just an inventive person. I think people use her femininity against her. They don't expect much from her. But what I love about her is that she's able to, uh, yeah, subvert those expectations and, and go above what anyone would expect her to do and and usually take it out on the people who thought misjudged her basically. So yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, I guess my last, I just have two words, Batman's role, which this is a problem with me sometimes where I just have notes and who knows what I meant at the time. But I guess with, with Carolyn's essay here, Batgirl certainly is, is making commentary as well as pushing things forward. Is Batman, should Batman also have that role of, of pushing forward positive ideas or is he always the one that's sort of stagnant and he stays pretty specifically with the times. And so Barbara or whoever is wearing the cowl at the time has to go against him. So you're asking, should that, should that be, I mean, should it be, is it? What, from, from what I see of Batman, he's, he's real consistent. I mean, you know, in Black Mirror, he uses cooler technology and can, you know, 3D image the the killer whale and and do all and do all those awesome things. Yeah. So there's that reflection of culture, but Batman himself is incredibly, incredibly consistent in in motive and method. I mean, even though the technology changes, what he does with it is still. He harnesses he harnesses fear and he harnesses expectations and, and uses those against people. You know, no wonder he praised Betty for doing that because he that's the that's the very same thing that he, that he does. He takes people's expectations about a bat and he uses those for for his own advantage. So, I I think that Batman, if he got too pop culturey and referency and political, like it would it would distract from that, as you said, that stagnant, not in a negative way, but maybe that that consistent piece that he provides mm. where other things, Scarecrow, Joker, Batgirl can be in relation to him and reflecting or shaping and showing the times. It seems like it helps to have Batman stay at that level. Mm. I wonder if he's broken out of that at times. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a word that, or two words that were passed around at the Bowling Green State University. And I can't remember now what it was, 
what it was. I mean, it was basically toxic masculinity, but it had a, a mm-hmm. better term to it. But I mean, is he almost like a, a symbol of uh, white male entitlement? Like these are the way things have been and always will be. And if anyone, if he goes outside of that, people are going to freak out because no, that's outside of my my comfort zone. And that's what happens, you know, with like video games and things where, oh, they're trying to push the envelope. I don't like that because, you know, my entitlement, I, I don't know, is, is that who Batman is? And that he's like the, 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 the comfort zone. Let's not get out of the comfort zone. If you want comfort zone go, or out of it, go to another character like Barbara who will push the envelope. But mm. Batman's my idea. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, to, to fiddle with Batman is to fiddle with more than just the story. I think you're right to tie it to, to him functioning as, as a representation of identity. And whether that's male or white or white male or, or, or some combination or some other piece, there's, there's something consistent that's there. But yet, I, I do appreciate, at least in the Batman universe, those other supporting characters are able to do so many of those other things. And again, I don't think a lot of those characters could do all those things if Batman also was, was bouncing around and, and revealing things and reflecting the culture too much. I think that it would, I think that it would, it would minimize, I think those other characters. I mean, in a sense, those other characters are able to be at the depth that they are because Batman has a consistency. So I don't know if it's a negative thing that he serves that role. Yeah. Well, remember you did say Trump, Donald Trump is Batman. So (laughs) (laughs) there's some Batman like tendon. My ratings are going to plummet with this episode. Uh, (laughs) Skyrim. (laughs) <laughs> or skyrocket yeah any other uh thoughts or notes on this particular one the last thing that i had highlighted was on 208 and it's right in the very middle of the page here barbara is essentially mentoring two younger versions of herself a new bat girl and a new oracle such that barbara does not have to represent all women as she did in the 60s or even all women with disabilities However, most of the stories with Stephanie as Batgirl feature almost entirely white and heterosexual casts. And then it goes on to the, to the future Batgirl of Nyssa. Mm-hmm. So in, in the fact that she even calls her the future Batgirl makes me wonder if we're bouncing into that fourth wave without her, without her saying that or having to commit to it. Well, we're not there now. I mean, I don't know what the Batman Beyond comment is current comic is currently doing i don't know what nissa because she says reappears in 2017 and this book was published in 2019 and Mm -hmm. but just with current status of of barbara and her book like we're back we're back in the the third wave for sure if we were in a fourth one so that's the problem which is which is sad that culturally we might be in this fourth wave but batman universe wise we've taken a, a step back yep and I, yeah, I don't know how to uh, how to fix that. I think editorial is, is part of it. Um, one of the tweets, because I mentioned the writer uh, that left had tweeted. She said, "If a man in charge says, you know, I support women, you need to look around to see if there are actually any women around that he's supporting." Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was really interesting. But it's it's going to come down to ed- editors and what they allow for their their writers to do with these particular characters. But we, I had, or we had in the scheme of this backroll run, the current one that's going, we had a disabled black. I think she was. 
well, I'll just say queer so we can do like the blanket term. And then we had a um, a transgender character at one point who was also a person of color. I think she was mm-hmm. she was Asian. And so they were like, with this current run that we're on, like the past six or so issues, like, where are they? And they were name dropped in 47. And I laughed and I was like, wow, you do remember who they are. Mm. But you know, and, and I can't tell is that the writer not using them? Are they being told you can't use them because they're in like actually a different Barbara was forced to go back to Gotham City and leave Burnside. Um, so it really is. Unfortunately, there are just so many men up top and, and just really at DC in general. I remember seeing a panel or an image of a panel from comic-con maybe it was last year as early as last year and it was like a batman panel and i took a screenshot and and sent it to carolyn and said what's wrong with this picture and i think there was either one or two women on the panel and everyone else was a white male Mm -hmm. so the readership i think is really diverse but the the writers are not really diverse and uh editorial i think is not diverse and so that is being reflected i think in the storytelling unfortunately Mm -hmm. so we push forward and then we're like taking steps back for whatever reason okay it's a sad time (laughs) yeah well the the good news is is that i mean to go back to the very beginning of the podcast like like with our founding documents oh, the Constitution yes. and the Declaration of Independence, we have not done what they've called for, but mm-hmm. yet the structure is there for us to do it. And, and same thing with Batgirl, not just Batgirl, with, with the whole Batman universe. Like the structure is there to be able to fulfill these things and these roles and these groups and and bring others in and to speak to things and to speak to people and to speak for people to a degree. It's it's The tools are there. Whether we decide to engage them or not is is hopefully not only up to the editors, <laughs> hopefully the, hopefully fandom will have a role here. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. It's been a sad time for me as a fan. So I mean, we can only hope, but this is, yeah, it's fun to reflect on good times. <laughs> so, well, anything else on Carolyn's essay? No, it's, okay. it's brilliant though. Okay. So now we are just going to give our overall thoughts on the collection or, you know, what you have read. My two questions for you would be, would you recommend this uh, of what you have read? And would this be helpful in a senior thesis seminar of, you know, which you have taught? I don't know if you're doing that this year or not. To be used in what sense? Uh, Like to give an example of a successful thesis or Mm, an unsuccessful one potentially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely would recommend it. The The way that I could see this being most helpful is because most people are not going to read a whole book on politics in Gotham and, and both, because most are not going to have an understanding of the Batman oh, yeah. universe yep. to really engage it. I mean, and I, I, I only do to, to a certain, to a certain degree. And, and I feel like I'm more invested in graphic novels more than the average person. And I'm still not, I'm still not, you know, all, all in and not at a stellar level. So I, I feel this would be most helpful of, I would love to be able to say, Hey, read this certain essay or, Hey, Oh, I see this would really apply. So I could see pieces of this being very, very recommendable. And, and could I use it within a senior thesis class? Absolutely. And, and the one that I think that's the most succinct and clearly argued is the, is the scarecrow one. 
I mean, to talk about Scarecrow preying on personal and political fears and then using those to achieve what he wants. Like that's, that is a concise power pack thesis. And in about, and this isn't a criticism, but in half the pages that Carolyn did, that person dives in to that. Now that's a narrower project than Carolyn had, but an essay like that, it is, it is, it's tight, it's clear, and it's incredibly well-researched and it's well-argued. So yeah, like rhetorically, there were some amazing things happening within the four that I read. Yeah, for sure. I, I would recommend it. I thought that it was really good. I was nervous. Some of them I thought, oh no, what's this going to be like? But it, it turned out to be okay. Um, some critiques I have, because hey, you know, it was a review copy. I think I have that freedom. I had some Nolan fatigue for sure. There were at least, I think there were four. There were four essays based off of the Nolan films, which, well, I'll, I guess I'll round out my critique. The other critique, I'll just say that, the Nolan fatigue. What about other incarnations of Batman? I mean, you had Nolan, BBS they talked about, uh, the comics, of course. A little bit more on the animated series or or just dive, or more video games, just to have it more well-rounded. There were three women writers and only one essay about women. Um, so that was a bit disappointing. And I, at first, was going to blame my editor, uh, Picariello. But then when I asked, you know, the call for, it was a blind submission, really, as far as I can tell. And so I think he just probably processed through which ones uh, were the best and and went for it. So uh, I don't know if I can really blame him for the makeup of all these men and then all of this Nolan kind of stuff. Uh, It was just how it happened. But, you know, for me, I'd love to have more essays by women and about women would be great to trace it. But alas, So, but overall, yeah, I would totally recommend this. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on. How'd your, how'd your maiden voyage feel? I've, I've made it through. We, we did not hit the iceberg. So it it was quite the journey. This is quite the runtime for a podcast. Boy. Yeah. And, and this book is, it's, it's so much more accessible than I anticipated. Again, as as a huge fan of Batman, but not somebody who's read a ton of stuff, like it it gives you often the background that you need to be able to engage it. And then the things that I didn't know, I had you here to help me with. So yeah. it was it was a great ride. So glad. Uh, where can listeners and viewers find and support you? Oh yeah. So I write articles for the website Medium. And you can, I'm on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, Sam Allen Heath is the, is the full handle for Instagram. And those articles are primarily deal with looking at life through the intersection of, and I'll use one of your favorite words, but looking at the intersection of, of race, politics, and empathy and <gasps> a, a call for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm wanting to try and articulate a third way of, of how do we engage in a racial discourse? How do we recognize pieces of our culture and of our history and, and move into acknowledging those and move into a different era? So I, I write there. My Instagram account, I put the articles on, but I also put any books that I read. Um, it, it, it transitioned over from those artsy photos with the filters that aren't allowed anymore into really just the books that I read and the articles that I write maybe a few years ago. Man, and some of those uh, articles have like such a controversial headline. Like the last, what you have many, but I remember one of them is like, I killed George Floyd. Yes. (laughs) I mean, there's a hook if ever there were one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and I, 
I had a uh, one comment on that article that said uh, that I killed George Floyd. Yeah. Then do us all a favor and turn yourself in. Yes. So that was that was an intense one. But no, it's it's about yeah. what whiteness is and white culture mm-hmm. and how that played a role in George Floyd's death. And and speaking of that in first person terms. But yes, some of them have some some controversial titles. <laughs> They sure do, yeah. I keep post I keep tagging Donovan on a lot of them. I don't know if he's ever read any, but I told him that you and he would get along well and have good discussions. Oh great. That's so he's a big fan of coats, which I know you're moderately. I'm down on coats, but I just recently watched something with Ibram X Kendi and I'm like, that's the guy that I want right there. He's got some hope and actual like positive things that things could be better. Well, Coates is at least really intellectually honest, and he'll say, listen, I'm an atheist, and I want to scream at the waves, and I want to diagnose, but I don't fully have a solution. And Kendi is all about the solution. Yeah. Um, And he, Kendi would take great issue with many of the things we said about race tonight. He's articulating a very narrow, not in a negative sense, but a very narrow yet nuanced view of race. Yeah, I've read his book, Stamp from the Beginning, and my wife is reading with her book club, and I'm going to read it soon, his How to Be an Anti-Racist. And it is, the the way to be an anti-racist is a very specific thing for him. So he is, he is speaking the things. Are you going to read the children's guide to being an anti-racist? Because he made a children's book too. I may, literally, I may or may not today have gone by with my kids in a (laughs) downpour to pick up anti-racist <gasps> baby by Eva oh. Kendi, and it's sitting on our counter upstairs okay. right now it's our kids get a new birthday book it's the we, we buy a ton of used books and and all that but a new book we get once a year at a local shop in town at new dominion bookshop and they're closed because of covid covid and you can't browse but we found i found three books online and i i would always pull three from the shelves and let them choose and wendell our 16 month old i didn't let her choose so the one i chose for her was anti-racist baby so oh, i flipped through it about seven hours ago when it was dinner time and i'm gonna go back and actually read the full thing tomorrow so yeah yeah we've got it there it is you got it well remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll the oracle at gmail.com do you have an email that you would like to give to people or do you just want me to forward you if i get anything for you no i'd be happy to so sam heath my name s-a-m-a-t-h-e-a-t-h and the number four at gmail.com Okay, so if you've got any complaints, they're going to send you a bunch of Trump memes, probably. Uh, You can find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, and also now you can subscribe on YouTube, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl the Oracle, and follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon, and once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Uh, Next time will actually be with Carol and Coca, which is great. So until next time. Why on Babs Lovers? (laughs) Great. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>